Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome back to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one-star hosts talk about five, four, and three-star prospects and everything in between. I'm your one-star host, Chris Trevino, and as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Martinez. Gerard, you sounded very excited to do a podcast this week. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm always excited to do a podcast. I think... Um... We've got some things to talk about so we can be a little more consistent with the podcast. And certainly it's a crazy time in college football, not just recruiting wise, but I feel like in my almost 20 years of doing this, this might be the most wild time of college football in the history of college football. Like I'm trying to think back to when college football was evolving and changing more in a shorter amount of time. And I don't know that there's been a shorter amount of time where you've seen more potential impacts with new rules and new dynamics to the recruiting process. It's crazy. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, sort of uncertainty with it. So it's got people, I think, both <laughs> anxious and excited. So we're kind of seeing this evolve uh, as we go, and it definitely impacts the recruiting process. And with USC having a brand-new coaching staff, and being very active in the transfer portal, we are seeing it directly affect USC football. And, and so, yeah, it's been kind of crazy, and we're, we're trying to get our arms around it. You're absolutely right in that we're living through one of the most sort of dynamic periods of college football and the recruiting aspect. And how much is that going to change? What happens? To, what does college football look like in five years? Does NIL get reined in a little bit does it even run wilder still in the coming years that's sort of what we're going to talk about in this episode a little bit at the top but before we get into all that we have a jam-packed episode but before we get into all that gerard we're actually got a little bit of a sponsorship going on our friends at trader joe's uh usually you hear us do this this read for the parasol podcast but today we're doing it for the composite two-star recruits our first time with the read so Trader Joe's, you know, always been good to us, always been loyal to us. We have a lot of Trader Joe's fans out there in USC football nation, the Trojan family. Ryan usually talks about sweets, so I usually have to talk. I have to go to sweet route as well. I picked up some of those uh, mini peanut butter cups that you have at the checkout. I, I can't resist. I like to pop them in the freezer, and they're so good. I usually will eat the entire thing in one sitting, so I, I limit myself to three. Uh, three every night. Just take three out, eat them, and that's it. That's, that's my dessert. They're so good. Gerard, do you really have a sweet tooth? I do. I do. I don't have many vices in life. I don't gamble. <laughs> I don't really drink. Don't do drugs. Don't really womanize. I don't do anything. I just sit in my house and write about football recruiting on the message board. <laughs> but if I do have one vice, it's probably carbs. <laughs> and it's, yeah, sweets. I love sweets. And so 
yeah, you know, it's funny because Ryan always brings up Trader Joe's and, you know, Trader Joe's is slammed where I'm at. So I can't always yeah. get in there. Uh, but I do love the trail mix at Trader Joe's. That is always awesome. Uh, but I actually just went to Trader Joe's yesterday uh, that you bring it up, and I got some Moki. I haven't had Moki in a while, and I was in there, and I saw it, and I was like, oh, you know, I haven't had any of that in a while. So um, that's kind of like a, a, a nice little treat, and it's uh, not, not too bad for you, um, and it's different. So I hadn't had that in a while, and Trader Joe's always has those kind of interesting, different sort of things you don't find in, in the regular grocery right. store. So, um, yeah, I grabbed grab myself some Moki. So I'm looking forward to having that at some point, but yeah, sweets are, are definitely a, a problem <laughs> for me. Like you, I can sit down in a sitting and finish off uh, ice cream or whatever it is, you know, that, that I have in front of me. So if you're listening and you just, uh, you have a hankering now for some sweets or some trail mix or whatever, go on to our friends at Trader Joe's and get yourself hooked up. So thank you again to Trader Joe's for sponsoring this episode. Now, Gerard, cold open time. A lot of people really liked our cold open, or maybe not Maybe not liked is the right word, but a lot of people were it – got, it got a lot of debate going in terms of, you know, USC and this villain status and what it needs to do to be back to a villain, or do they even want to be a villain? So we, we went with a broader theme uh, last week, and people seemed to really like that. It was one of our most popular episodes. So we're going to try that again to go a little bit more broader. Obviously, we have a new commitment to talk about. We're going to talk about that. We have some visitors that that visited over the weekend. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, uh, for like the 50th time on this podcast, Dylan Riola. We're going to talk about him later in the pod. But right now, as I mentioned in my intro every every week on this podcast, we talk about five, four, three star prospects, and everything in between. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the in-between, and that being sort of the news that came out this week that the NCAA, who was a villain in a lot of people's minds, (laughs) they're going to be going after or, or cracking down on NIL. We have it labeled here on our sheet as NCAA versus the boosters, the dreaded boosters. So that's going to be a, I guess, it looks like a legal battle that could be moving forward. You know, NCAA came out to say they were going to re reinforce the NIL guidelines. They clarified some of those 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 initial NIL guidelines. Ten months into the whole thing, this is this is sort of the thing that you know Lincoln Riley was maybe hinting about earlier when uh, in the aftermath of losing Josh Connerly, he said you know NIL does should not be a part of the recruiting. This seems to be a step in that direction from the NCAA saying, you know, they're going to crack down on NIL in recruiting. And, you know, it's a very complicated topic. What is a booster? What isn't a booster? Is a collective a booster? How can you sort of, you know, regulate that? You know, and they said these these rules, these new bylaws or these these clarifications are going to be uh, retroactive. So you can go back. They can go back and go after somebody that maybe made a collective deal two months into it. So that's going to be interesting to see what sort of the aftermath of this new decree is going to be. And I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. This is sort of a, a nuanced topic. So we're not gonna be able to get to any, a lot of it or all of it in one, in one cold open, but I know you have some thoughts, Gerard. Yeah. And first and foremost, we're not compliance officers. So 
you know, there's interpretation here with some of these things. Absolutely. And that's been part of the problem is that with recruiting, you have schools that interpret the rules one way and another school that interpret them another way. And we've talked about that in the past. And so not to rehash that conversation of, you know, other aspects of the recruiting process, which schools interpret differently. But this is obviously a main one and an important one as to the interaction between the schools, the recruits, and those that want to endorse those recruits. And this is mostly clarification on the recruiting process. This is not really about players that are enrolled in college. So we have to sort of underline that and point that out. This is not a clarification or or kind of re-emphasis on, okay, this is what the uh, boosters or this is what these collectives or this is what these companies can do with kids that are already on the roster going to a college. This is more that in-between sort of limbo period where the kids are being recruited out of high school and they're being recruited to go to a school. And these collectives, these, you know, $50,000 pancake club type initiatives are being lured out there for the kids and being made public and known so they know that they go there and they're going to get paid such and such amount of money. Um, This is not really retroactive. I mean, the the, the saber rattling coming from the NCAA is the rules that have been in place. So it's not necessarily like they've changed rules or they've updated rules. The rules have been the rules. It's, It's literally them just saying, listen, these are the rules, once again, everybody, And this is what you're allowed to do, and this is what you're not allowed to do. Now, they did go a little further into explaining the boosters and sort of what boosters are involved with the recruiting process. We know that boosters have never, ever been able to talk directly to recruits, ever. Like, that's always been uh, illegal, and that's always been something that the NCAA uh, has frowned upon. Um, So that's nothing new. I mean, they're basically just reiterating – um, anybody who triggers that booster status that communicates with a prospective athlete that's being recruited by that school is cr- creating a violation. So calling, texting, direct messages, any of that stuff. Okay, that's always been the rule. NIL has not changed that. That's always been a rule. And so they're just reemphasizing that to let people know that just because you're part of a company that wants to endorse a player coming out of high school If you are still a booster and you're involved with those things that trigger what a booster is in terms of giving money to a school, you cannot be involved in that process of talking to a recruit. Now, what does that really mean? What does that really do? It just means that these uh, these these boosters and these individuals that have, you know, these millions of dollars uh, that are the big boosters are the ones that would really move the needle with the recruiting process and NIL with kids coming out of school. They're just going to create shell companies. They're just going to create middlemen, and they're just going to create buffers between themselves and the money that is exchanged. So you're creating another bagman situation. I mean, that still exists now. It just exists on more of a corporate level um, to some extent. In other extents, it might be a little more individual and personal. I mean, I think when you get into the, yeah, we're going to pay you such and such money, for autograph sessions, like Quinn Ayers, the quarterback who was coming out of Texas and then signed with Ohio State, that whole deal of his evidently was mainly just about uh, an appearance and signing autographs. Okay, cool. So 
who's going to get anything out of that? Was that Tops? Was that Upper Deck that was paying him to do these autograph sessions? No. It was somebody that was probably just a booster connected with Ohio State. But is the name on the paperwork actually that individual that wants him to go to Ohio State and is paying for this autograph session for to lure him to Ohio State? No, it's probably some shell company which he's two steps away from. Now, how much can the NCAA actually investigate that? Because that's a private sector. That's not the universities. So all of a sudden you're outside of that bubble and we know the NCAA does not have subpoena ability. So, you know, how much can the NCAA really do with this? And and the other thing that when I see NCAA versus universities, which I think people maybe lose a little perspective on, universities are the schools, okay? Universities equal... Uh, the NCAA equals university presidents. The NCAA equals the schools themselves. So if it's the boosters versus the NCAA, then you have to kind of wonder, okay, so that's the boosters versus the schools. Does this become a point where, again, you have private sector that becomes frustrated with this process and people just start to say, well, maybe we should just bring this in to the private sector full, full on and have more of a minor system like you see in Major League Baseball. You have a farm system. Because I just see these these <laughs> these things coming and people butting their heads against the wall and nothing really changing. I mean, you're not going to put the genie back on the bottle. Yes, they've, they've instituted and clarified what the booster situation is with NIL. And, and, and obviously that will handicap, you know, uh, let's say Oregon and Nike because you have – Phil Knight and you have Nike, which are very supplemental to Oregon recruiting. We know that as far as marketing and everything else. We've read about that in Oregon Live. They've had some really good exposés on how involved Phil Knight is with the Oregon football program. So Oregon cannot, um, you know, dangle anything in front of recruits via Nike. You can't say, well, we're going to, you know, hook you up with Nike and we're going to do this and Nike, Nike, Nike. Because Phil Knight is a booster for Oregon. But again, I mean, how much can you really prove of, you know, what conversations that have happened and things? I mean, we've heard in the past with Oregon that players have been told that they'll they'll have a, a endorsement deals after they get out of Oregon by Nike. And, you know, they'll be represented by Nike and they'll have a foot in the door with the Nike brand and so on, etc., I mean, and technically, you're not supposed to really talk about that as a school. Coaches are not supposed to use that as an inducement to be able to recruit or to get a kid to sign with Oregon. Yet, you know, you've heard about it in the past, and it probably happens. It's a conversation that happens behind closed doors. And unless a kid or his parents or somebody's going to come forth and say, yeah, Oregon had this conversation with me, and that conversation isn't legal, there's nothing the NCAA or anybody else is going to do about it. It reminds so, us of the tampering discussion we had last week. Like, yeah, it's it's hard to like, you know, prove that. You know, two two player two friends talking about linking up. It's like hard to to prove some of that that those conversations that go on. And like you said, you're not really going to get those validations unless you know someone comes forward and and speaks about it. Yeah, there's a whistleblower of some sort because someone didn't get a deal or something happened, and and then sometimes you maybe get somebody that comes forward and, but then they've got to have the information and they've got to have the receipts for the NCAA to do anything. And so, 
Yeah, we've seen. I mean, the NCAA, it, they are the universities. They're one and the same. People kind of look at the NCAA as this autonomous sort of group of people in Indianapolis, but they're representatives of all these universities. I mean, USC found that out when the Committee of Infractions was looking into Reggie Bush. And you had Missy Conboy, who's uh, at Notre Dame, who's a, a big part of the Mo Notre Dame administration, sitting there uh, giving her dissertation on how USC should get the death penalty with recruiting, which was a joke, which was a complete, utter political bureaucracy bias joke. It was complete conflict of interest. And she's sitting there opining about how USC should get the death penalty. Yeah, sure. And, and you know, it was so hypocritical because the NCAA is not going to give anybody the death penalty, certainly not a USC, where you're not going to get that TV money. You're going to tell USC they're banned from being on TV. Well, guess what? You're not going to get any of that money for those games, and the NCAA wants that money. So it's complete BS. It was a total, like, uh, a bluff and just, you know, well, this was almost what happened sort of thing, you know? And so the NCAA is the university. So if the boosters are going against the NCAA, they're really going against their own schools. And like I said, I don't know if eventually that sort of erodes into, you know, these boosters going, why are we, I mean, why are we, buddy, we keep slamming our heads against the walls here, trying to be involved in this process uh, with recruiting and trying to get these guys into college when it just it, it's just frustrating and, and it goes up even to the point of the players at the colleges as well there's still a bunch of issues there as to you know who's involved and who's endorsing I mean there, you can look at it ideally and say okay you know the kids that are good enough and and we also have to acknowledge that some states allow high school players to receive NIL and some don't so from a state by state standpoint there's different rules as well so that's a bit of an evolution. We've seen Tennessee, which uh, already has gone to the state, and I, I don't know if they passed the bill yet, but they're trying to pass a bill at the state that uh, I think boosters or collectives can be involved in the NIL uh, communication with players. Not recruits, but it's not illegal for them to be involved with arranging and communicating with the school about college players getting NIL. So, and I, I think we've mentioned this before, but that's obviously illegal according to the NCAA. And yeah. in that case, the NCAA would override any state rule. But why is Tennessee doing that? They're doing that because they're getting ready retroactively for a potential fight against the NCAA when the NCAA comes knocking for whatever they've done with their collectives or what have you, they want to be able to have the state fight against the NCAA instead of just a university fight against the NCAA. So they're dragging the state into this and trying to pass laws that they'll eventually lean on, which again, it's retroactive. I mean, this is a law that's going to pass after they've, they've already done <laughs> quite a few things with NIL. Uh, Nico Almaleva is one of those guys that, you know, reportedly getting an $8 million deal, $2 million a year, but there's a lot of talk that there's stuff involved in the contract that he signed that has directly to do with playing football at Tennessee. And that is another thing that That's is a no, no, as a no, no. So again, Tennessee's like, uh Oh, well, mm, we're going to go to the state and we're going to try to get the state involved and we're going to make some rules and some laws. So if the NCAA comes after us, we're going to be able to fight them uh, with the state and not just us. 
uh, which is obviously something that, you know, USC didn't have as a private school. Uh, but Penn State had in the Jerry Sandusky case, and Penn State used the state of Pennsylvania and the attorney general and all those people to go after the NCAA, and the NCAA backed off. So, you know, that was a lesson learned uh, by some of these universities and these states that if you want to fight the NCAA, don't just do it yourself, bring the government into it. So this is all very tricky and, and sticky, man. This is there's a lot of there's different factions going to be involved here, and the one faction we really haven't heard a whole lot from yet is the U.S. government and Uncle Sam. And again, the closer we get to where the universities are having to pay players, if it comes to that, where somebody goes, okay, you guys can just pay the players, just pay them directly, because we need more oversight, we need more regulation, we need more control over this NIL, uh, NIL process, then, you know, Uncle Sam comes in and says, okay, well, you got to pay them benefits. They're employees now. You got to pay taxes. You lose your tax-free exemption. Uh, <laughs> it changes everything. And again, I just don't know at some point it's not worth it for the universities or it's not worth it for the boosters and people start looking for an alternative to college football. You know, the, the, the universities, at least like USC, UCLA, some of these universities in the Pac-12 just decide, you know what, we're going to go the way of Harvard, we're going to go the way of Yale, and, and we're not giving scholarships, we're not doing any of that stuff. And we're, we're just going to play college football with the kids that want to come here and, and they want to play. And it's, you know, nobody really pays attention to it too much. You know, the the, the, the diehards that went to the school and just loved the school, they'll watch it still, um, but it's not going to be as big, obviously, as it is. And the top players are going to have to find another means. There's going to be have to be some farm system. Um, you know, who knows how that looks or pops up. I just wonder if that's like just where we're headed because there's this constant butting of heads and, you know, the money is going to dissipate. The more money that the players get, the less money is there for the universities, uh, AKA the NCAA. And so, you know, there's a lot of money there. Don't get me wrong. And there's, there seems to be plenty to go around, but we're talking about bottom lines and margins and these universities are going to get to the point where they're like, you know what? It's just not enough money for us to continue down the path we're going. Gerard, obviously you've been covering recruiting for a long time. And, you know, this this word booster gets thrown around a lot. What is the Gerard Martinez definition of a booster? Because I feel like it's not so simple as, you know, that old famous quote. I believe it's about like the obscenity test, like you know when you see it. I don't feel like you know when you see a booster because boosters come in all different shapes and sizes, and you don't really ever get to – you don't really know you're looking at a booster um, all the time. So is there – I know there's a legal definition. I guess the NCAA has defined what a booster is, but do you have your own definition of sort of what a quote-unquote booster is? Not really. It's, it's the same as what the NCAA says. It's anybody giving money or – being a donor to the school. Um, obviously, there are people that want to do well for schools that are fans of the schools, maybe even alums of the schools that don't give money to the school. And that's another thing where, you know, maybe some of these quote unquote boosters reroute their money and they don't give directly to the school anymore. You know, how, how does that work when Again, you've got companies within companies within companies, and people are just siphoning money to the universities, but it's like, how do you prove that this one person is actually behind it? And that's the alum, that's the person who's got a connection to the university. 
you know, it, it's really difficult. I, I, I mean, you know, Snoop Dogg didn't go to USC. To my knowledge, he's never been a booster at USC. But, you know, Snoop Dogg, maybe he grows up Trojan fan. We've seen him at USC before. We've seen him at Oregon as well. So I think he kind of swings whatever <laughs> way <laughs> the wind blows in terms of uh, whatever team is popular at that point. But is a guy that, you know, has money and could, and could decide, you know what, I grew up in Southern California. I really like the USC coaching staff. I'm going to get involved. He's got a Pop Warner program. You know, he could induce kids to go to USC over other schools. You know, so he's not a booster because he's never given any money to the school. But he is a guy that might have uh, influence and want to push kids to school. And he's got money and he could do it very easily. And so, you know, that's where you sort of get out of the, the, the bounce with things where, you know, just because somebody's not giving money to a school doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have uh, other, you know, motives to be able to help the school. And so maybe that money doesn't go towards facilities. It doesn't go uh, in the, the sort of normal ways of being a booster. It, it now can go straight to NIL and they're using their money that way. So you're not a booster anymore. You know, you're giving your money to NIL and, and you're still helping the school. You might be helping even, you know, instead of building a new facility or helping with nutrition program or buying a new golf cart to drive recruits around campus, you're just paying the recruits <laughs> directly and saying, hey, that's my quarterback that's playing. Yeah, I gave that, yeah, $200,000 of my money is in that dude's pocket. That's why he's throwing those touchdowns. Hey, because it's that individual that is giving money and representing the university. Are there other interpretations and things that go further that white brother? I mean, not that I know of. So, I mean, that's my kind of a booster is the, are you giving money to that school in any way? But there's other ways to boost the program. And NIL right now is going to be an interesting way of where you have people that can give money directly to the kids. And in California, that's one of those states where it is legal for high school players to get NIL. And so they can be involved with this process and they can get endorsement and get money. And so, you know, how much of that is going to be, op you know, open for for scrutiny uh, before they even get to college. I, I don't know how that process works. I don't even know if the NCAA has a process for that. Obviously, once they get to college, that starts to get audited. And then the compliance departments at the college get involved. But still, I mean, you know, I don't know. I just don't know how well you can enforce this thing if somebody really just wants to get in the shadows and remove themselves directly from it, but still be very influential and still push kids towards one school over the other. And also the NCAA, also it was mentioned in the, the Sports Illustrated uh, article that I was reading that the biggest challenge for them is staffing issues. They don't really have enough people on the enforcement team to kind of handle that. So that's sort of like a, a terrible combination of not having enough uh, staffers to kind of go out and enforce at all these schools. And also, like we have mentioned, sort of it's so hard to prove these things that are going on because if you don't want to be found found out, you're not going to be found out. There's so many different ways to, to hide what you're doing or, like you said, shell companies and being three layers removed from, from a deal, stuff like that. So it's going to be so so just a bad stack right now against the NCAA not having enough people and just how hard it is it will be to prove that. And like we said before we started this topic, 
uh, topic. Very, very uh, detailed, very nuanced, very big old pile of mud that you have to go through with this this whole thing. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about it in the future. But before we move on, is there anything you want to add about this? Are you looking forward to the eventual NCAA versus Tennessee uh, lawsuit in 10 years? No. <laughs> um, it's just one of those things that, it, you know, it's frustrating because I think it's a little bit of the wild, wild west. And, you know, the NCAA is just regurgitating what it, it's already said. There's no new move to sort of narrow or, you know, they're so scared of being sued. And the NCAA right now is just, it's an archaic sort of system of governing that is clearly uh, no longer able to move with the times, right? They've never been a very flexible organization. And so now that you see things moving this quickly, and they've been sued, and it's been their own fault because they have not moved and they have not been able to, I think, work fairly within their own guidelines. And so they've put themselves in this position. They're like, you know, the newspapers or the cable of uh, technology uh, in terms of organizations. They just have not adapted very well. And so, you know, the NCAA is going to have to at some point. Uh, poop or get off the pot and become something for the future or just go away, <laughs> you know, just fade away. And certainly I, I've always wondered if they try to transform themselves into some type of player union, if they try to uh, become a little different and, and take a different angle in terms of regulation and, and being a, a middleman uh, between um, the TV money and the video game money and the merchandise money. Uh, and the players. And so that would give them some power and some influence. And they would also position themselves to be able to kind of know what's going on uh, because you're involved with these kids, uh, you know, not just um, at the, the college level, but perhaps even coming out of high school. Uh, and you would be just a little more aware of what's going on. Um, so we're going to see, you know, what becomes of the NCAA. I think that's, you know, another shoe that's got to drop at some point. I, I just don't think the NCAA, as it is right now, has a whole lot of value. Very detailed topic indeed. And with that, we're going to, we're going to, we went for the big picture. Let's go back to the smaller picture, back to the USC recruiting lens, the recruiting landscape, because they did pick up another commitment, not out of high school, but another portal pickup in Solomon Bird. Uh, Wyoming defensive end transfer, technically the first portal flip for Lincoln Riley because Bird was committed to Georgia Tech. He committed to the, the Yellow Jackets at the end of April. USC pursued him still, got him on campus for an official visit this past weekend. Obviously pulled the trigger on Tuesday to to sign and commit to the Trojans. Now six foot four, about two hundred fifty pounds. He was a former freshman All American uh, out of Wyoming his freshman year. Uh, had six point five tackles, nine tackle, nine point five tackles for a loss, and forty five total tackles as a true freshman. Sat out the twenty twenty season and was a little bit injured uh, last year. He had a shoulder injury that kind of cost him the end of his year. Only played in eight games, 
but still had about uh, 37 tackles and three full-point tackles for a loss. He is going to come in. He's going to play both defensive end and sort of that rush and hybrid spot, so they're going to move him around. That's sort of kind of the athlete that he is, the guy who can move around. He's a nice pickup in terms of, you know, needing more pass rush. There is not a lot of returning pass rush and sack production on this team, especially with their their designated pass rushers being, you know, Romello Height, who doesn't have a sack in his career. Corey Foreman, you know, I believe he does have one sack or one tackle for a loss, but very limited in that, in, that, in that aspect. So, you know, Bird fills a hole in terms of, you know, getting a guy who's gotten in the backfield and made plays in the backfield. Uh, he is a redshirt junior. He has two years of eligibility remaining. He is a California native. He's from Palmdale, played at William Knight High School. And I know you might be thinking, where the heck is William Knight High School? I've actually covered this team before, uh, Gerard. Chris Rowland, I don't know if you remember that 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 uh, that name, three-star athlete. I believe he was in the 2019 class. He was a late uh, USC offer. I went to go see them uh, play when they were in, like, playing La Habra or something. Roland had an amazing game in that playoff loss. He had, like, 400 total yards. He was just unstoppable. But that's my only connection with William Knight High School, so I did recognize that. But I would say... A really nice pickup. Uh, all the transfer pickups so far post-spring have been defensive guys, so you know you know, that staff knew they needed some more reinforcements. Expect more, but you know, a nice addition uh, along that defensive front overall. Yeah, a very nice addition. Uh, a surprise addition, but I think this is sort of, for Casey Rogers, the Nebraska defensive lineman who ended up committing to Oregon, I like Bird better. I think he's mm-hmm. more athletic. Yeah. Uh, don't like the shoulder injury, but we'll see. <laughs> you know how that goes. I, I don't like taking guys out of the portal that have injuries, and it seems like a lot of these guys that USC's picking up uh, or are interested in had some nicks and uh, some things that kept them out of games. But nevertheless, six four, two hundred fifty pounds. Um, really really like his redirect i think uh there's a little bit of uh, kevon thibodeau that he reminds me of mm, because okay. he's long he's got long arms uh but he moves one direction and can redirect himself very well in another direction and so he's very good at that second move in his pass rush um got a great dip he gets that inside move really well uh very good pass rusher in terms of like that pass rush skill uh, but when he gets moving one way, you see a lot of his highlights, even out of high school, where he's able to stop, redirect, and get going the other way. And so he's a guy that works really well against those teams that run a lot of misdirection, whether it be spread option or some type of motion out of the backfield. He's a guy that reads well, good eyes, good vision. Uh, like I said, long, um, definitely more of a five-technique type of guy, even though he kind of can play that stand-up role. Uh, but one of those guys where you look at and you say, okay, there, there's, a, you know, you see the Drake Jackson, you see sort of that type of guy that's got natural pass rush skills and awareness and um, certainly very overlooked coming out of high school. He wanted to go to Fresno State. Uh, you talked to him and um, he kind of talked a little bit about coming out of high school and always being a USC fan uh, and wanting actually, you know, when USC wasn't going to happen, potentially going to Fresno State and they overlooked him as well. So he ends up at Wyoming. This is one of those situations where you hope USC remembers this staff, you know, the the gems that are out there. 
You know, the guys that are out there in Southern California, this is not Texas where even these little small towns, you know, they've got your high school football games on TV every weekend. There's a lot of little dark spots, you know, all over the map in California, Southern California, Central California, Northern California. And this is a kid that, you know, you watch out of high school. He should have definitely been recruited much harder. Now, I don't know what his grades were like, but he definitely should have been recruited harder. Fresno State should have been on him. Uh, he got a late offer from Washington State, so they saw something. Uh, but this is a guy that, you know, he's put on the weight. I think he came out of high school at like 210, 215. He's closer to 250 now. I'll say it again, he's a guy that could really play 275, and I think he would probably retain a lot of his quickness and a lot of the password skill that he has and still have more weight and more muscle and probably be an even more effective player. But he's going to float around that 250, 260 range, and he's going to play – um, that defensive end spot and you know it'll be interesting to see I mean he he's talking about coming in and playing behind uh, Romello Height and Corey Foreman but I think he could end up being behind Nick Figueroa as well and he's a little more of that type of player uh, from what I see in terms of just size wise and being able to put his hand down I think he's definitely better with his hand on the ground and again a good pass rusher but because of his redirect and his eyes and his ability to, to make quick moves, I think he's a guy who's going to be able to be pretty good in a run game against a lot of teams. Like against UCLA, I think he's the type of player that you want on the field. So this is a very good pickup. Uh, it's a solid pickup. A guy that, like I said, out of left field a little bit, and we really didn't know much about. But watching his film, I think he's a solid player. And I just want to stress, Gerard, that out of high school, he was an official two-star recruit. So that means I'm officially designating him a composite two-star recruit war daddy. He's the first of our show. You know, we may need to have him. We, should, we might need to actually get some excerpts from him or have him on the show as a bona fide, bona fide two-star. Those guys, <laughs> listen, there's as many two-stars out there as there are five-stars, I think. I mean, they don't <laughs> – we, we talked about this at our first show. They're rare. Two-stars are recru – two-star recruits are rare, so let's not – Let's not, uh, you know, wag our finger at two-star recruits. Yeah, you usually have to punt the ball or snap it to get a two-star. So, you know, to be a, a defensive end and a tight end out of high school and get a two-star ranking is is something to behold. So I'm, I'm officially designating, I just made this up, a composite two-star war daddy. He is our first one out in the wild that we've, that we've talked about on this show. Hopefully one of many. Well, not many because, as we talked about, very rare but like you said, Nick Figueroa, I think I think Bird is even a guy who can come in and, you know, start for this team. Nick Figueroa was kind of uh, established as a defensive end starter along with Stanley Tauafu at the, the nose tackle and then uh, obviously Tuli Tupelotu at that defensive tackle. You know, they'll they'll swip, they'll, they'll swip, they'll switch uh, back and forth, they'll, they'll move them around. But, you know, Nick sort of has that that edge right now as the the returning starter, you know, obviously banged up. Uh, last season healthy now but bird is obviously a guy who can come in and push right away uh for that job i think in the in the, in the summer and even if he doesn't you know beat out figaro for the starting job at, at worst he's on the two deep and just a great rotational player a guy can come in uh you know figaro is pretty good against the run as you said bird also has some traits that can make him good in the run but even if you bring him in a third down he's a pass rush guy he's gonna get after the quarterback you know, with there with Thule, who has some pass rush skills, which I think his pass rush is a little bit undervalued, that being Thule. But, you know, at worst case, it's a great, great depth pickup. 
And I think, as I just mentioned, I think he can be sort of a starter for this defensive front. Yeah, truly keeping him inside is going to be huge for USC because he is their disruptor and having an interior pass rush is vital to any defense that's going to be good. Not just the lead, but just good. You want to have a good defense. You, you want to get, you know, into the top, let's say, 40, 30 or so, you probably have to have a decent interior rush, and that's going to be all Thule, you know. And, and we're going to see what happens with Brandon Peely because he's got a little something there too as a pass rusher, as a disruptor on the interior, but he's got to stay healthy. And uh, I think, you know, Nick Figueroa has obviously been a guy that's kind of that – out of left field, under the radar type guy for USC, and and yeah. it seems to make plays. Like Nick has always been a guy that has a natural ability to make plays. He's very instinctual, and he's got great natural pass rush skill. And so you see a little bit of that with Solomon. Solomon's a bigger body, though. You know, Solomon's a big guy frame wise. When I look at him, at least on film, never seen him in person, so I'm projecting there. But I'm, I'm looking at him on film, I'm like God. It, he, again, he's a guy that could put on even more weight and I think be very effective. Um, I think this is, again, a sort of like, okay, Casey Rogers versus Solomon Bird. And Casey Rogers had a lot of injuries at Nebraska as well. And I know uh, Nebraska fans thought uh, fairly highly of him. They thought he was a, a talented player and a good player when he was in and he was contributing. Um, I think you kind of have to put a versus there. And I think you're okay against Solomon Bird. I, I think uh, – you know, again, he's got an injury that he's coming away from as well, but he hasn't had injuries. Um, he could end up being a very good get for USC. I, I think this is a sort of uh, out of left field under the radar, um, but definitely a good player. Not an interior guy, and that's obviously what USC really wants, uh, but it's nevertheless still a, another guy that's got legitimate pass rush skill and some of this natural ability there, some stuff that you can't teach. Are you saying a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush? Always. <laughs> Absolutely. And, always you know, in recruiting. Always, always in recruiting. A, a bird in the hand is always worth two in the bush. A Solomon bird is worth, is worth as much as a two in the bush. I butchered that, but you understand my joke. Uh, but, yeah, you. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw uh, maybe a, like, you know, offense, uh, opposing offense facing third and eight. You see Fig, Thule in the middle, Bird at the defensive end, and then, you know, Romello or Corey Foreman out there. I think that's a very formidable pass rushing front there. And just a little bit more background on um, Solomon, who I talked to uh, for a story that's up on usfootball.com. It's a VIP story. But, you know, he said this was a business decision for him. You know, obviously he said USC reached out to him about a week after he entered the portal, which was in early March. They stayed in contact with him. They were actually recruiting him before Georgia Tech did. So he had sort of uh, some relationship with them already, went and committed to Georgia Tech, Sounds like USC kind of circled back and were like, hey, we still want to get you on campus. You know, he said, you know, it's it's really hard after you commit to sort of, you know, keep looking around like that. But he, but he said it was a business decision. He didn't want to be thinking 10 years from now, man, I, I really wish I took that visit. Or, or, man, you know, if I'd gone to USC or wherever, you know, maybe my life is different. It's all about bettering his family. You know, he's, he's got a wife. He's got a, he's got a young son. You know, he wanted to obviously bring them back home, be be part of that, you know, support system he has out here in Southern California. And, you know, they got him on campus and they sold him just, you know, the people did. And he, he really likes the plan that Lincoln Riley has in place and sort of getting the right guys in, 
to build this thing up and win some games and also develop the guys that they have there now to be better. And that's sort of, you know, the two things that he wanted to hear. You know, he didn't want to, he wanted to win in, you know, could this be his final season? Possibly. Like I said, he has two years left, but to come in really like Sean Nua, obviously I'm sure they, they sold that Aiden Hutchinson sort of uh, development that Nua was a part of at Michigan. So I'm sure that was a uh, tantalizing uh, pitch for him in terms of, you know, being a guy who can get after the quarterback and really help his draft stock because I think he does have some draft stock now, you know, especially if he has a, a really big season, uh, you know, another eight sacks, whatever it may be. He can, he can make some plays here in the Pac-12 and, you know, just being able to come home was big for him and sort of put on for his city. And so a lot of factors went into it, but above all, just a business decision. It just made the most sense. He said it was tough, obviously, to, you know, back off that, that Georgia Tech commitment and flip because, you know, the people at Georgia Tech, they out there, the coaches and fans were, were so good to him. But at the end of the day, you know, he had to do what was best for him and his family. And Gerard, now that there's another Solomon on the team, obviously with Solomon Tuliapupu moving to defensive end, who gets to hold the solo nickname? Do they both go by solo? What's the deal there? I don't know. You talked to Solomon Bird. I don't know if uh, you broached the subject of, does anybody call you solo? Uh, Bird is a great nickname though. Just to get Bird. Yeah. That, that's, that's a pretty good nickname. So they may just call him Bird. Solo may always be solo. That's a good point. I just wanted to see what your reaction to that would be. But like you had mentioned, he took that official visit over this past weekend, and there was a bunch of visitors that actually – a bunch of older guys, transfer guys that, that visited over the weekend. So I think that's a good way to sort of segue into our, our, our little visitor recap. Uh, you know, obviously you had Cody Jackson, the former uh, Oklahoma a wide receiver, I believe he was a 2021 signee. You had uh, Cooper Lovelace, uh, the Juco uh, out of Kansas. He took his official visit this weekend. Uh, Gerard, you're going to have to help me out, but I'm going to butcher this last name. Karchin Tabarucci? Rucci? Tabarucci. Tabarucci. Hey, we, 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 we made an agreement on the peristyle. We have to say his name with love. It's Tabarucci. And you have to you have to pinch your fingers together when you say it. Also, like like a good marinara sauce has to be said and made with love, Tabarucci. So he there you go, there you go. I I like how you were so afraid of pronouncing his last name that you actually screwed up his first name too. You call him Carson. 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 Tabarucci. Is he Italian? Is that what the deal is? I didn't know he was Italian. I don't know. He's Blair Angulo's guy. Okay, and we know but, the Angulos. We know but, the Angulos, right? So um, I actually haven't asked Blair about that. I don't even know if Blair knows, but uh, nevertheless, it was a great hairstyle thread about Atabarucci. If he if he comes to USC, we have to say his name with emphasis. So that's what we're doing. We're we're, we're we we hear <laughs> we hear once again USC is in good position. I don't know how many times we're going to hear that, and guy ends up going to Oregon. But nevertheless, I digress. But uh, yeah, we're 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 preparing, you know, for him to uh, to sign with USC, or he doesn't really sign as a transfer, but commit to USC, and uh, then we can say his name uh, over and over and over again, and uh, it'll be great. It'll be better on the live show because you actually get to see the real 
You get to see the fingers. Yeah, exactly. But that was his second visit this weekend, which is, you know, a good sign. Uh, uh, Out of Utah, the I believe he's a redshirt freshman. Uh, Kobe Covington, the Washington uh, defensive back, cornerback, whatever you want to label him. He took his visit on Thursday. He was in town. Uh, King Joseph Edwards, who you're like, what a name. But he is a 2024 edge rusher, I believe. He was in town, uh, took a visit over the weekend. Uh, Jordan Addison, uh, question mark. Gerard, do you want to go there? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we're pretty sure he was on campus. Was it an official visit? I mean, we're kind of in that sort of Caleb Williams. Was it an official visit or was he just here on campus and he was on somebody else's dime? Uh, There's a lot of that sort of speculation going on. We know he was in L.A. Uh, We know that he threw with Bryce Young. Uh, I also knew that he threw with some other quarterbacks while he was in L.A. And so uh, he's been around uh, a little bit. Um, I don't know if it was an official visit or not. Uh, that's kind of been low key, but um, he's been around. Uh, the guy that we're really sort of trying to figure out that I, I'm I'm pretty convinced right now. Nobody will come out and confirm and say this is you know with without a doubt this is fact. But pretty convinced that Jermaine Lole, who is the defensive tackle from ASU, has not yet officially visited USC. Now he could have been on campus. We talked about this last week and a little bit in the war room about him going into the portal, I think it was on a Monday, and then uh, Sean Nua, the defensive line coach, who was obviously going to be on campus to host him on a visit, was already in the Midwest on a Wednesday. So there was really, man, that was really like not a lot of time there. I mean, it's possible that he took an official visit and, and he squeezed that in, but it's probably more likely that he was just on campus unofficially if he was on campus at all. Now he's from Long Beach. It's right up the street. So exactly. But um, he did put out some visits that he's going to take. He's going to go to Louisville. He's going to go to Texas tech. He's going to go to Florida. He's going to go to Oregon and he has dates for all those schools did not put a date for visit for USC, but PFF put a post out which included USC as schools that he's considering and he's going to visit. So that obviously opens up the door again to, okay, is USC involved or not? Now, the talk coming out of ASU is that he had some great issues. Now, I'm not that guy that's going to be a catalyst for calling players out or kids out about grades, especially when they've lined up other visits to other schools. So for me, that's a wait and see because we hear that quite often when schools are losing out on a recruit uh, is because of the grades. You know, that's the old Notre Dame UCLA. Uh, we couldn't get them, but it is because of the grades. You didn't have the grades for the school. You know, that's the little bit of uh, sort of thing that we hear coming from fan bases and sometimes coming from coaches. And so we'll see if he takes these other visits. He could go to Louisville. He could go to Texas Tech and you go, oh, okay. Maybe he's, you know, he didn't have great grades and there's a class or something that he needed. There's a big difference between a high school kid or even a junior college kid and trying to get those transcripts and trying to make sure that they've got the right classes because sometimes there's stuff that's just all over the place. And it's hard to know exactly what the heck 
uh, credits have been have been already completed, and you know there's a BYU class somewhere in there that we've seen this all the time. We've seen guys coming out of uh, junior college sometimes that are actually bumped up a whole year because there was classes that nobody knew that they took already in high school or something. You know, it's like, oh, you took algebra. You you didn't have it on your JUCO transcripts, but you actually took it, you know, your senior year in high school. So you already had that. So, you know, all of a sudden some school figures that out and boom, that kid's on campus already and everybody's waiting around going, wait, 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 wait we didn't think he was eligible yet. So that kind of stuff happens with high school kids and junior college kids. But when you're talking about a guy that's already been enrolled in college for three years, his transcript should be pretty easy to know, to know exactly like what if he's eligible or not, you know, what classes he's taking. Um, so I, I'm a little more skeptical. And I, again, I'm reserving judgment. We heard that he has issues. Uh, it's just a matter of the significance of those issues and whether USC can uh, bring him in on a visit or not. But I can tell you if Florida and Oregon can get him in, then USC can get him in. So we're going to see, I think those are the two visits that is he just putting that out there? He's going to visit those schools. He's going to look at those schools and not really recruiting him because sometimes kids do that. Sometimes players do that. They'll have a list of schools and they're not really considering all those schools. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of, uh, you know, sort of projection right now. I, at the latest, have not gotten any positive feedback about him officially visiting USC. So let's just say that. So uh, that's sort of where it stands with things. Um, and that's unfortunate because he is an interior pass rusher and he's a very good one. Another guy coming off an injury though, and that's, you know, unfortunate, but, um, a potential impact player certainly. And so, uh, if he is eligible and he's able to play next year, uh, he's going to be an impact player for somebody. He's one of those schools. I think he's going to be a guy that's going to push for starting reps. And sort of, it's like. It felt, it feels like with Lole, it feels like sort of a pumping of the brakes, if you will, because in the initial, like, chaos of Lole, you know, officially, there was a report that he's going to enter the portal, and then when he officially hit the portal, I was hearing from multiple sources that USC was in a really good spot to get him just because, and I heard that from three different sources, three good sources that, you know, being home was important to him. Obviously, the the schedule or the visit schedule here sort of is all out over the country, so I'm not really sure there's a dis- disconnect there, maybe with my information. But everything I was told, it was you know being being close to home was sort of a factor for him after his dad and his his brother uh, passed away in, in 2021. So. You know, obviously, there's there's time for Lole. It doesn't look like he's making a decision soon when he has all these visits lined up. So it seems like this one's going to drag out for a couple of weeks. So we'll see. And obviously, as you mentioned, there's you know the, this question of uh, academics and stuff. So USC fans are just going to have to wait a little bit longer on the whole Lole uh, train uh, moving forward. And I just wanted to add that Addison is taking an official visit to Texas this week. I believe that started uh, Tuesday. So he is in Austin right now. We posted a picture on his Instagram. He was eating canes, um, which I don't know. that I found that funny. Not barbecue, but canes. Uh, I don't know if you're a big canes guy, uh, Gerard. Uh, the only canes I think I've ever had have been in like an airport. I, I don't know. I don't know how to respond to that. I, I did not know there was canes in airports. So 
I got I got nothing on that. I'm sorry. I have nothing to follow up with it either. So that sounds, unless you don't want to add anything else about these visitors, that we're going to take our break. It sounds like we're going to take our break. <laughs> okay, it sounds like we're going to take our break. So with that, uh, we'll take a quick, quick break. We're going to come back and talk about some misses, again, with the Lincoln-Riley era, and talk about the honeymoon. Is it over? Is it not over? Sort of QB recruiting, QB updates. And then we're going to talk about Gerard's target list. And then we got some listener questions. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Gerard, as always, how was your break? Fantastic as always. That's lovely to hear. Lovely to hear. Um, So we're going to talk about some stuff that has been a topic on this show for quite some time sort of that being the Dylan Rayola recruiting philosophy. Um, If you don't know, Dylan Rayola recently committed to Ohio State as the crystal balls predicted, as we sort of had mentioned on this show previously. I believe it was, I don't know if I, time is, is, is really weird in the summer for me. So I don't know if that happened 48 hours ago, if that happened over the weekend, I don't know, but he, he recently committed uh, made that public, the commitment to uh, Ohio State, and sort of it. Now it's like, where does Lincoln Riley and the 2024 class go with QB recruiting? And we've mentioned Julian Sane, and we've mentioned Elijah Brown, and we've mentioned Isaac Wilson, sort of those, that West Coast trio of what's going to happen there. Does Lincoln keep going after Riola? Does you have to do a pivot and go to one of those guys. As I reported in the the war room, it doesn't sound like saying at least initially is going to have, you know, that, that interest in USC. He's got, he's blowing up everywhere. He's picked up pretty much every major offer. And the other wrinkle to this is that Alabama offered both Elijah Brown out of modern day and saying the two top 2024 quarterbacks out of California, they offer them both this week. So just a little bit of an interesting uh, wrinkle to this whole uh, saga going on right now in the 2024 class. Yeah, definitely very interesting. Um, we have seen, you know, some maybe some movement 
um, kind of keeping an eye on Twitter and followers and stuff. And some Peristyle members kind of picked up on, you know, maybe Jaden Davis, the number two quarterback uh, nationally in the 2024 class, uh, getting a look from USC. Now, he already has an offer from Alabama and two dozen other schools, six foot, 190 pounds, um, out of Providence Day School in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, guy across the country, small school. I don't know much about Providence Day, uh, but rated uh, the number two quarterback in the nation, number one composite quarterback in the nation. So, kind of interesting. Uh, you would think at six foot, 190, haven't really watched much of his film, but probably a little more of an athletic running quarterback that can move probably a little better than Dylan Riola. That was my one big issue. and still is my one big issue with Riola is that I, I don't think he's immobile. He's just not necessarily the style of quarterback that Lincoln Riley has been successful with. He's I mean, not Caleb Williams. For Lincoln Riley. And um, that formula is a guy that's got some wheels and can uh, freelance a little bit outside the playbook. And I think that's, in general, what's good for most offenses. Um, You have the exceptions to the rules, but for the most part, I think a lot of these offenses that you see, those quarterbacks can get outside the pocket and they can extend plays or they can actually get yards with their legs. And so um, the successful quarterbacks that Lincoln Riley has put in the league, uh, those guys all – fit that description. And I don't know that Dylan Riola really fits that description. So yeah, they lose him. Uh, we know that they lost Josh Connerly Jr. Uh, lost him to Oregon. Um, so, you know, there's been some misses here uh, a, a little bit and it's hard to know, you know, we talked about Casey Rogers a little earlier and Solomon Bird kind of looking like a replacement for him, even though he might end up being a little better of a player. In my opinion, there's, I think a little more upside with Solomon Bird. Um, there's, you know, Marquise Irving. There's a few guys there that, you know, USC has been involved with that have gone to some other schools. And it's one of those things where, you know, it's interesting because Lincoln Riley's obviously put a lot of emphasis into the transfer portal. You can't turn the program around quickly unless you're going to get some impact players out of the portal. And they have and they haven't. They have gotten some impact players, but they haven't necessarily got them at some positions of need. So it's a little bit of both. You've gotten a guy like Travis Dye, who I think is going to be an immediate impact player and a guy that USC needed to get. Uh, Obviously, Caleb Williams. Now, you had Jackson Dart there, but you get Caleb Williams, and I think that is an upgrade just in terms of production. And knowing the offense, you know, you get an immediate impact player you can plug and play uh, at the the most important position on the football field. So, yes, they've they've gotten some of that, but, you know, with the lines, they needed a left tackle, didn't really get a left tackle that's a franchise guy that's going to be able to, you know, play right away and really lock down that left side. That's sort of up in the air. We're going to see what Bobby Haskins can do when he comes away from this foot injury, knock on wood, he comes away from this foot injury, and he's able to be healthy and ready to go for summer workouts. Um, Didn't really get a whole lot on the interior defensive line. And that's still going to be a bit of an issue for USC. They did improve somewhat at linebacker. Uh, Shane Lee, who I finally remembered his name. Uh, there you go, Pratty. A guy that, that you know, is, is, is certainly going to play a lot of minutes for them. And they, 
They feel really good about his leadership and what have you. Um, I think in the Pac-12, he could be exploited a little bit because I don't know if he's great in pass coverage. Um, but uh, you add in there uh, a guy like um, uh, the ASU kid that they just got. So Eric Gentry. Eric Gentry, you know, I remember Shane Lee. And then, you know, Eric Gentry's name has to exit my brain in order to make room for Shane Lee. That's how it works with me. I get it. Uh, I get it. Only so much space uh, in this cranium. But, um, yeah, they, they get him, and he's a dynamic player and an interesting player. It's still you know, kind of sort of how he fits in and uh, very intrigued about how USC is going to use Eric Gentry in their defense. We talked about that a bit uh, last week in terms of that sort of nickelbacker, sandbacker position, which we don't see a lot of, but you also don't see a lot of 6'6", you know, 210, 215 pound linebackers that can move in space either. So usually putting those guys to line of scrimmage, I think, you know, that's a, a opportunity for USC to kind of have a, a unique wrinkle in their defense, uh, being able to have uh, Eric Gentry in there uh, next to Shane Lee and maybe uh, uh, Raylan Goforth, you know, having those three guys in the, in, in, in the game at the same time. Um, so, yeah, we've seen some players, and, and you know, they're going to be there with Jacoby Covington. They're trying to get to, to really, um, you know, supplement uh, the quarterback position. Uh, I think they could definitely use him. Um, they could use a little more depth as well. You, de- you definitely want guys that are potential starters uh, at other schools uh, in, in your program. But, again, the misses have been at places that are, you know, tough because – you need that left tackle, and you need that left tackle not just now but in the future, and they don't get it with Josh Connerly. Um, and now with the 2024, that's a ways away, but you know that the quarterback position is always well ahead of the curve in terms of commitments and where kids are going to school and what they want to do. So now USC sort of has to make that determination, and they've got to pivot, and they've got to go in another direction. They have time to do that, but they're not going to make that impact of, Hey, you're our number one guy and you're the guy we really want to recruit. They already did that. They, they already, you know, used that <laughs> with Dylan Riola. And now you are openly publicly going after your second choice. And so that's again, that's what the reason why I just didn't understand why USC did that initially. And this is all per Dylan Riola. And this is really per some of these other quarterbacks in this 2024 class that have told us that they haven't been able to get meetings and sit down one-on-one with Lincoln Riley because he had his guy and he was focused on that guy. And, you know, what they can't do is triple down on Dylan Riola. Like, I think they doubled down on him when he was visiting Ohio State and we're still saying, no, you know, this is our guy and we're going to go after him and we're not going to talk to Julian Sand. We're not going to talk to Eliza Brown. We're not going to talk um, to, to any of these other 2024 quarterbacks. Now he's committed to Ohio State. You have to go in a different direction. You can't just say, hey, you know what, we're going to have a great season next year and Dylan Riola is still going to be our guy and we're going to hope that Ohio State slips up somehow. I I just don't think that's, you know, a a strategy. So, yeah, you're going to have to sort of pivot, go in another direction. The question is, do you do that sooner or later? Because, again, you're you're not necessarily – like the scholarship offer, it doesn't matter really at this point. You know, they haven't re-offered Elijah Brown, to my knowledge. Um, they haven't reoffered Julian, uh, Julian Sand, and those two guys were offered by the old staff last year. Um, so it's one of those things where the scholarship offer is probably not going to be a big deal. You can, you can recruit these guys, though, and you can have them on official visits. The only problem is, is, you know, do they feel like they need to be reoffered to come down? Do you need to sort of put that out there? But in the grand scheme of things, 
the offer is not a big deal. It's who you're really committed to going after. And do you do that again? Or do you sort of leave it open and say, look, we're going to see how these guys play their junior seasons. We're going to see how they play next year. And we're going to get the best quarterback out of that group instead of the best quarterback from last year's group. And that meaning you're not recruiting the best quarterback uh, of the sophomore class. You're recruiting the best quarterback of the junior class. I remember something that Peter Sermon said to me. He was linebacker coach, recruiting coordinator at USC under Steve Sarkeesian. And he said, we always want to recruit the best high school football seniors that are out there. We don't want to recruit the best high school football freshmen or Mm. the best high school football sophomores. We want the best high school football seniors, which is saying we want to use the evaluation period as much as possible to get the best players as possible because you can recruit a guy as a sophomore and he's the best player in the nation as a sophomore, but he's not even top 100 by the time he becomes a senior because there's some kids that just flatline. They, they, they improve, improve. And then by mid uh, high school football career, they just don't get a whole lot better. So you want to make sure that you're getting the best high school football seniors. And so USC could take that approach as well and say, you know what? We try to go after the one guy early. We try to earmark him. He ended up going somewhere else. You know, we can still recruit him as well. We can still be involved with him, but we're not going to just exclusively start to eliminate our own options and go after him as that one person. We're going to go after everybody and sort of, you know, keep our our, our fingers in multiple pies and just kind of know where we're going and just say, okay, we're going to see it out. And maybe you get some of these guys to camp. You know, that's obviously a big deal. You know, usually the May evaluation period you're evaluating, but maybe it's like, hey, we want to get some of these guys to camp and the local guys, maybe you'll have an option to be able to do that. And then we can make a better evaluation as to who we really like. And we're not just evaluating off of film. So there's a few different ways you can go here, but certainly um, it, it goes towards, you know, the timetable for success and, there's been a little bit of like, well, how USC doesn't really need an elite quarterback in 2024. Let me correct you. They need an elite quarterback every single year, okay? You recruit the best quarterback and try to land the best quarterback every single year. Or you end up with two scholarship quarterbacks on your roster, and that is no bueno. You do not want two scholarship quarterbacks on your roster because your third guy is a walk-on. And he's the guy that's going against your first team defense on the scout team offense. And that is not a good look for your defense. You want a guy with a division one scholarship arm going against your first team defense. You want your first team defense to get as good a look as possible because your first team quarterback and your second team quarterback are doing install and they are going to be working together with that offense during the week against your scout team defense. So it's really your third team offense and your 13 quarterback that is giving your defense a good look. So you do need three quarterbacks on that roster that are scholarship guys and not walk-ons that turn into scholarship guys, but legitimate scholarship guys. And with the portal, you know, you've got guys leaving all the time. So you've got to re- over-recruit these positions. So running back and quarterback, you've got to get guys every year. And yeah, I mean, there's going to be stop gaps. There are going to be players um, that maybe, you know, you do, the need isn't as great, but, you need a good guy every year. And in Southern California, you should be able to get that guy. You know, we saw that with the Pete Carroll. We saw that even with Lane Kiffin. Those coaches were able to get good quarterbacks year in and year out. And good recruiters 
are able to stack those positions. You know, Dante Williams is out there busting his butt to go get more good uh, defensive backs. You know, he's not like, hey, we got a good group last year, so we can just chill. No, you got to develop those options. You got to get guys on campus, and you got to have the opportunity with a good season to be able to close. And if you're at USC and you have a 10-game season, nine-win game season, you should be able to do that. Uh, I'm sort of sidetracking you a little bit because I liked that uh, sermon quote you talked about in terms of we're recruiting the best high school football senior. Is there is there an example of someone that jumps out that you've covered that just fits that 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 description uh, perfectly? Because uh, the first one that jumps out to me in terms of the best high school football senior would probably be Jackson Dart, uh, most recently in this 2021 class who just went, you know, bananas in his uh, final season at Corner Canyon and sort of rose into, you know, being a national QB recruit in that final season. That's the perfect example. I mean, that's that's the, the one example where it's like, you know, USC, uh, people forget um, they had a Garcia committed for for a while jake garcia uh, who ended up at miami who, who who did pretty well at miami wasn't bad um and they had miller moss so they had two quarterback commits and then out of nowhere comes this jackson dark kid and it's like we got two quarterback commits ah uh, we need to make room because we need uh to get this jackson dark guy because he is potentially special and uh looks a lot like sam darnold and so that's a great example at the quarterback position because you see it at other positions where, you know, you get guys that are, are, are you know, these amazing players coming out of you know, Pop Warner and they have all these nicknames and, you know, they end up, you know, in some way midway through their high school career or just sort of like, okay, they haven't really necessarily improved a whole lot. And then you have those guys that actually – you don't even want to call them late bloomers because it's like high school, man. I mean, shoot, that's – that's where you're supposed to bloom. Uh, yeah. But Jackson Dart is a good example of a guy that, you know, wasn't highly recruited um, and became that kid. I mean, Sam Darnold, to some extent, was that as well. I mean, Sam Darnold early on uh, was looked at, I think, you know, his first scholarship offer was as a linebacker from Utah. So there's guys that just develop. And I would say that's much more of a West Coast thing than a Texas thing or a Southern thing. Uh, or even just back east, you know, those kids out there, you get a lot of guys that are just developed uh, very early on, and and they do peak. I mean, that's always been sort of the the knock on Texas players specifically. I remember having this conversation. Uh, gosh, who was it? Was it T. Martin? It was somebody we were talking about recruiting Texas and being very wary of those Texas kids that come out and are just like they're a finished product, man. Like. What you see is what you get. However, he played at Plano, Texas, or Tyler, or wherever he was, Katie, you're like, that kid coming out of high school is peaked. He is that player, and you're going to get that player for four years in college. He's not going to get a whole lot bigger. He's not going to get a whole lot faster. He's not going to be a whole lot better. And it's because these kids play high school football and football for so long. You know, they're, they're, they're six, seven years old, and they're already playing football, and they've been through that whole system. And by the time they're in high school, it's like, that's it. That's it's a finished product. Whereas on the West Coast, you may get a kid who, who only plays two years of high school football. And he may not play to organized football for very long. He may have been a volleyball player, may have been a basketball player. You get kids on the West Coast that tend to play multiple sports more often because you can. You know, you can play any sport year-round in California, Southern California. 
Um, so yeah, there's, there's a little more there that you have to consider. And there is that possibility of being able to get a guy on the back end of his high school football career. And he's still got a trajectory going upwards. He's still, you know, got more potential. He's still got more upside. This was a note written in our, uh, our doc here that we go off of, and it's just Lincoln Riley honeymoon. And I thought that was an interesting sort of topic to talk about. And I, I want to get your opinion on this. Is the honeymoon period over for Lincoln Riley or does that, or can that not be over until, you know, actual football starts being played? And for me, I think the, the honeymoon is still going on uh, to be candid. I don't think the honeymoon ends until that September, September 3rd. And that, that opening kickoff goes up. The second the kickoff goes, the honeymoon is over. That's when real football starts getting played. That's when a product is on the field. That's when fans and media and the world are going to see all this work that was put in if it's paid off. And the Lincoln-Riley era officially begins uh, September 3rd. So I don't know how you feel if you think the, the period's well over or is it still going on or when does it end. But for me, I don't think that honeymoon period ends until you know that opening kickoff. Sandals closes in September for <laughs> Chris Trevino, huh? I'm going to tell you. Tell it's me. It's not going to be over a, for a couple years. Oh. Regardless, in my opinion, regardless okay. of really what happens, unless it's really a disaster and it's catastrophic and it goes totally Chip Kelly. I don't think it's going to be a disaster. But. Yeah, I don't think the honeymoon ends regardless for at least a couple of years. Now, the interesting thing, and this is why I mentioned this topic and put it in the document for us to talk about, was because Lincoln Riley himself, he set his own expectations. He came out in his initial press conference and talked about winning now. And he put a lot of emphasis on turning this roster around, and I think we can win now. And I felt like, Lincoln, do you really want to say that? Is that what you really want to say right now? Because you have the ability to stretch this out a little bit. You have time to rebuild this roster. I think the Trojan faithful will give you some time. And this is the difference between Clay Helton and a Lincoln Riley, or Clay Helton and Matt Campbell, or Clay Helton and Luke Fickle. Lincoln Riley established that he can win at Oklahoma. Now, we have to be fair, and we have to be completely uh, honest about this. He took over a football program that was already rolling. Okay, Bob Stoops already had Oklahoma rolling. They were already a 10-11 win uh, season-type team when Lincoln Riley came over there. So he just kept that going. But he did continue to win and continue to dominate the Big 12. So... He's sort of shown he has the knowledge and know-how to win those games and to be that type of head coach. He is, in other words, there's this big word that has escaped USC in the hiring process in years past, qualified. Say it with <laughs> me, everyone. Lincoln Riley is qualified for this job, and that's the big difference. He has built-in credibility not only on you know winning games and winning big games, but also on the recruiting trail and developing quarterbacks. And that is going to give him time 
with the fan base. They're going to say, listen, they only won seven games this year, but we won four games the year before. It's really, I tell you, I was thinking about this, and I don't know if we have an appreciation for a USC football team that can only win four games in the Pac-12. Because, you know, we knew there was a lot going on, and it's Dante Williams' first go at being a head coach. And, you know, clearly some of the other coaches checked out, I think, when he was named head coach. Some of the players checked out. But USC to win four games in the Pac-12 is a bit mind-boggling. Because the Pac-12 sucks. Let's be completely upfront about it. It sucks, and it was not. Tell us how you really feel, Gerard. It was not a really good hard schedule that they had on top of it, and they and they still only won four games. So that's a bit. You got to take a step back and really sort of get an appreciation for that, and say, okay, now you're going to turn that around and you're going to win nine games, ten games next year. That's a lot, but that's sort of the expectations that Lincoln Riley himself put out there, you know, but kind of going back to the recruiting process, you do get to this chicken and egg sort of conundrum, right? You're, you need to have good players to win, but you also need to win to recruit good players. We keep talking about, okay, USC's going to get to a certain point, And then some of these guys that they're recruiting over the summer that they have lined up for visits, if you're going to get them to commit during the summer, they just got to have some faith. And Lincoln Riley, they just got to have some faith that he's going to turn this around. And, you know, a guy like Solomon Bird, clearly not recruited by Alabama and all these other, you know, schools, but he sort of talked to you about the faith that he has in this thing getting turned around. Christian Pierce, same thing. He told me, he says, you know, I really think that USC – is going to turn this around. Now, we've heard that from recruits in the past as well, that, you know, I want to be a part of the turnaround process, and that's what USC is selling, and it didn't happen. But in order to get some of these big-time guys that they're going to recruit and they're going to get on campus over the summer, those guys have to buy in before there's a product that's been put on the field in a USC uniform, okay? Everything is sort of, well, what he did at Oklahoma. So there is a little bit of a chicken and egg in, you know, USC, I think, to get the uh, elite recruiting class, that sort of top five recruiting class next year, they've got to win some games. But long term, you also have to win those games this season without those players. And so it's a little bit of a chicken and egg. And, and, and so that it's really going to be about how well this coaching staff can coach this year. This is going to be the year that is probably going to be the most difficult to get that sort of to get the plane off the ground if you will you know to get that initial push with developing these guys that are on the roster and you don't have necessarily a bunch of those elite recruits because USC's recruited okay they've recruited well I mean I think they had number seven class in 2021 obviously last class was almost non-existent they barely got anybody in that class outside of like Raleigh Brown um, and then they had that really bad class in 2020 or 2019. Um, so there's been some misses, and the talent at USC is not what it was. So, you know, the transfer portal, obviously they put a lot of stock into that. 
they've they missed some guys and maybe there's some guys that they haven't been able to get. We're still going to see, you know, what that actual portal class looks like as a whole, because we're not going to really know until, you know, maybe even August. We're not going to know who's actually going to be on the team and who's going to be on the roster. Um, but again, it's sort of that thing where Lincoln Riley set some expectations himself. And I don't necessarily know that he needed to. It's almost like going back to Dylan Mariola. USC doesn't need to say, okay, you're the only guy we're going to recruit. I don't know that Dylan Mariola required that. I don't know that Ohio State told him that before he was ready to commit. You know, I, I, you're taking options off the table yourself. Just leave him there. Just say, hey, you're our guy. We love you. We're going to recruit the heck out of you. But when he pops at Ohio State, you know, twice in <laughs> the, the matter of a week, you go, okay, well, we're going to talk to this other guy now. You know what I mean? Like, you, you I, I just, I don't know that Lincoln Riley needed to put that out there. But regardless of him putting that out there that we're going to win right now, we're going to be, you know, good right away, I still think that that honeymoon period, it has time. Clay Helton had no resume. Clay Helton had no credibility. It was every single season he was trying to build that credibility. Lincoln Riley already has that. So, you know, there's going to be, I think, an extended honeymoon period. And, you know, after uh, really, I think, you know, you get into that second year and, and, and at some point during that season, that's when people are going to go, okay, so what, what have we done? You know, what, what has the coaching staff done? What has, uh, what has the recruiting process looked like for them? How many guys have they been able to get? And then you start to look at that third year as being sort of the pivotal year. That's, what I see, in my opinion, when you're talking about the honeymoon period. If we're going to maybe this car analogy that I've heard thrown around where, you know, Lincoln Riley inherited sort of a Porsche, uh, a perfectly fine running Porsche out of Oklahoma, and he drove it pretty far. But at USC, it's, you know, a busted up Ferrari or whatever car you or nice and luxury car you want to do is, you know, it's, it's got the paint is chipping. The engine needs work. It's got a busted tire. It's got window smash, but you see what it once was and you can see what it, what it can be. And, you know, Lincoln's got to get his hands dirty and they got to build it up. And this first season, you know, as, as you said, the expectations are high, but you know, if they win seven games, a lot of people are going to be happy with that. But there's going to be some duct tape on this Ferrari that that needs to be to to help it get it moving down the road. And you know, I'm not trying to dis duct tape because duct tape is incredibly important and in, saves a lot of jobs. So our I next sponsor, our next sponsor, hopefully is I don't even know what like a brand of duct tape is. Is it just duct tape? Is there like Coleman duct tape? I don't know. If there is Coleman, you can sponsor us. The uh, we'll do a duct tape hour or whatever. But you know this Ferrari that's coming out of the shop in 2022 is going to have you know it's going to look a little beat at times, and there'll be duct tape. But you know if if it gets moving a little bit, I think I think fans are going to be uh, happy with that. But I am interested in your 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 um, answer in a couple years. Well, I'm sort of thinking more in terms of once the season gets going, it's over. So we'll see. Uh, and I, I will, I will uh, allow that. You know, it could be more than that, just because I feel like 90% of the Helton era was bad, with like 10% good. And now it feels flipped, with 10% uh, being bad, 
with the Lincoln Riley era, you know, losing Rayola or losing a Josh Carley. Ninety percent of it, everything that happens is good right now. So you, when that happens, you definitely have a lot more leeway uh, in that honeymoon period, and you know, it could be a longer period. But I'm gonna stick with my answer, and I'll be interested to see what the board looks like because message boards during a, a Saturday game the last couple seasons were really dicey you know something's going bad and the the, the those game threads got really uh really sad really fast so <laughs> I'll, you know I, I'm interested to see what like the first three straight three and out offensive series looks like <laughs> from the Lincoln rally area on the message boards it's not going to be as bad but I'm just interested to see what it what the response is to that well every day on the peristyle quite frankly uh during you know the last days the last couple years has been uh tough you know we've uh banned a lot of people and deleted a lot of threads and it's a message board you know and people i think get confused between it being a message board for conversation and dialogue and being a message board just to vent and just to be pissed off and just to let it out and uh whether you're sober or not and that's you know kind of what we always have to kind of keep taps on um but you know the message boards aren't necessarily the best litmus test for you know the fan base obviously you know the peristyle is is a lot of hardcore fans and they live and die with every single recruit every single first down every single touchdown uh every single missed tackle uh every single sack so you know i think the pair style will definitely, you know, be in an uproar if you lose games you shouldn't lose and what have you. But there will be the rational few that will try to talk down the folks and, and you know, say, listen, yeah, you know, we didn't play great this game, but there's things to take away from it. There's definitely a totally different tone even now. I mean, you know, with Dylan Riola going to Ohio State, and this was a different situation because we had kind of – we predicted this, you know, and it was one of those crystal balls and everybody kind of saw it going in a certain direction. So it wasn't a surprise like Josh Connerly was, but you have people that are saying, listen, we trust and Lincoln Riley, like this is not, you know, we just lost this guy and we've got Clay Helton as the coach. Cause you knew every good player you lost, that was going to be really detrimental to how the football team was going to play because Clay Helton's coaching staff wasn't there to, and this is the fan speaking, not me speaking. Uh, if if you didn't have that talent gap and USC wasn't immensely more talented the next team, they're probably going to be in for a dogfight and they may just lose the game. And so USC needed a huge talent gap to be able to win eight games. And as that started to decrease and deteriorate, you started to see the losses mount. Because all of a sudden now it was more about coaching and not enough about just being more talented than the team across from you. And so now I think people feel like the coaching advantage is theirs with Lincoln Riley there. And so, yeah, you miss out on the player. You miss out on the player. It's okay. We have better coaches. But, you know, that brings us back to the sort of in order to win now, you got to coach these guys up. you got to develop what you have. And so – I mean, it's interesting to look across town at the approach that Chip Kelly has with recruiting because his approach is I'm going to coach through whatever and I'm going to put the emphasis 
completely on my scheme and what we do on the field as a coaching staff. They are almost reluctant to recruit. I mean, if you look at USC versus UCLA this past spring, I would say that USC has, and I'm being very, very conservative, quadruple the amount of unofficial visitors this past three months. And we're talking way better level of talent that has been on campus at USC than UCLA. UCLA, I mean, the South Florida Express guys had to talk their way into even getting on campus at UCLA. And I understand UCLA is looking at it like, are we really going to get any of these guys? But the truth is, South Florida Express, while they have a bunch of four-star, five-star players on their team, they also have some guys that are not, you know, really highly recruited guys that maybe one of those guys becomes a Freddie Mitchell for you, who was a receiver at UCLA that they got out of Lakeland, Florida. Um, Now, UCLA was a better team back then, and they they were recruiting more nationally back then, but... You never know when you'll get a Mike Williams. You never know when you'll get a guy. Uh, and and that becomes sort of, you know, the first guy of many guys you're able to get from that high school because he goes to your school and he ends up developing. But they've had a very sort of aloof approach to recruiting. And they've hired a bunch of ex-USC coaches that coached under Clay Helton that were not guys that were known for being very uh, tenacious recruiters. So it's it's a very interesting approach and strategy, but it's all based on Chip Kelly saying, you know what, I'll find the guys. Hey, if we land a five-star guy, awesome. If we land a four-star guy, awesome. If we land a low three-star guy, we'll make it work. I think the, the, the uh, need and the excitement and the motivation and the push is not all that different among those players, you know, they're not like high five and Oh my God, we got this five-star guy. It's kind of like, yeah, we got that guy. He's good. Awesome. Okay. He's a three-star. Okay. That's cool too. We, we'll, we'll make it work. And so, you know, there's a lot of ego involved in that and offensive coordinators tend to put a lot on their scheme and they feel like their scheme is going to overcome everything. And certainly that's Chip Kelly's approach. I mean, they're just not that active in recruiting. So it's all about winning and putting uh, that on the table as the thing that's going to help you recruit further. And so USC sort of has to do a little more of that this season than they may do in future seasons. I mean, if they're able to win this season and they're able to grab that great 2023 class, then it's off to the races. You know, then you're going, okay, everything that everybody in the Pac-12 that's an opposing fan fears is going to happen. They're going to recruit hard, and they're winning games. And that is a combination of dominance for USC. And they have the coaching. So it's the it's the cycle, if you will. I think that's why fans are so excited because, as you mentioned, you know, Lincoln has that credibility as being a good coach. His coaching staff can coach. And once they start getting the players in to sort of, you know, supplement – what they're building now, it's, as you said, off to the races. And with that, we're going to transition to our last topic, uh, the target list. You you put out some new target list uh, for this month. Uh, as if you didn't listen to our podcast from last month, uh, where Gerard kind of makes these, uh, I would say, 
maybe like a stock market kind of thing where you kind of outlay outlay where what USC target is trending where, you know, I believe it has every offer out there right now. And then you kind of, uh, you lay out who's moving up, who's moving down, who's, who's stable in the middle. And you've done this for the 2023 and the 2024 classes. Um, probably much to your dismay. That's, that's a lot of names out there, but these are a VIP content item on usfootball.com. As always, your encouragement to join up and get on the peristyle and see all the, the great VIP coverage and content. But Gerard, what do you want to touch on with these? I know you don't want to give away too much, but is there anything that jumps out for, for May's uh, target lists? Yeah, I mean, we're obviously looking at the official visitors that are going to be on campus during the summer because, you know, summertime, a lot of these guys are going to be off the board. At least, you know, superficially, they'll be off the board. They might be on back on the board come October, just depending on how these teams play during the season because – you know, we've seen that go against and go for USC as well. So you do take it with somewhat of a grain of salt, but there's a lot of guys that are going to commit during the summer. So you're kind of keeping an eye on what it's going to look like during the summer and, and what guys are going to be able to bring in. Um, I think, you know, obviously we've seen with the two running back commits now for USC, Quentin Joyner and Marion Peterson, that has shifted the running back board a bit. You know, you talk to Roderick Robinson and you had talked, I think it was last week or maybe even the week before, where we kind of said, you know, it doesn't seem like USC's really making a big push for him right now. And they've sort of fallen out of contention, really, with him to some extent. He's still listed of having medium interest because, you know, if USC circled around and started recruiting him hard again at some point during the season and said, oh, listen, we made a mistake, we really want you, I don't know that Roger Robinson wouldn't still consider USC, especially if USC – was winning football games. You know, mm-hmm. that's the thing that locally, if you can win football games and you have some momentum on the field, you can sort of go back and double dip a little bit with maybe a guy that you overlooked or you slow played during the season. If you're winning six games, seven games, not as likely, you know, especially if you're recruiting against a school that, you know, maybe has a, a much better record or is beating you head to head. So, you know, Roger Robinson has slipped a bit we're still kind of having him in there as medium interest because potentially you know maybe USC makes another run at him later in the season uh we've seen Cedric Baxter who at one time had high interest in USC USC was one of his top schools um after his uh unofficial visit to USC and he slipped to low because USC is not among his top five schools and he's not going to take an official visit to USC so he and Trayon Webb are two guys that you know, originally it sounded like for sure USC was going to get an official visit and then boom, no longer. And so it happens very quickly. A guy that's kind of come out of left field who now says he's going to take an official visit to USC who originally had low interest. And I could still list him as having low interest because truth be told, USC is a long shot here. But keeping with, you know, if you're in the top five and you're going to get an official visit, so technically you're in the top five, I guess. You know, it's it's a little bit of a – at least he wants to visit USC. Justice Hayes. Justice Hayes, 5'10", 185-pound, running back from Roswell, Georgia. He's going to officially visit USC. I think June 10th is where he's uh, listed. He's the number four running back in the nation. So he rises up a bit. Ruben Owens, um, still medium interest in USC. The last time I spoke to his dad, there was definitely a shift 
in the enthusiasm talking about USC, and it doesn't appear like he's going to take an unofficial visit, and it doesn't sound like he's going to take an official visit in June, which he wants to make a summer decision. So without saying it, I don't know if that means USC is just completely out of it for Ruben Owens, but it definitely doesn't look good. So we still kind of have that medium interest, but it's definitely trending down for him. So the running back position has definitely shifted a bit. Uh, people often ask me, you know, how many running backs can USC take? They take three running backs, but it's just a matter of, you know, is there a guy out there that's best player available towards the end of the year and you try to squeeze him in there? Um, otherwise, you take two and they have two committed. Um, they're going to have to keep those two committed because there's a possibility that, you know, they're going to they're going to have some bigger schools. Maybe look at those kids as you get later in the year. And again, if USC's not winning games, you know, it becomes harder to defend those guys that are off in Texas uh, than if it was a local kid. Um, not really as much has changed with the receiver board, uh, you know, DeAndre Moore, I think we've moved up to high interest in USC. Uh, I think USC still got work to do there. You know, there's still some some work that has to be done, but I've been told by people close to him that uh, that unofficial visit that he made during spring ball, uh, USC really made a good presentation and definitely got back in it with him. Uh, we're still listing Brandon Enos of having high interest, even though, I think USC is definitely in a battle with Ohio State and Alabama, uh, but I'd be hard-pressed to say they're not at least top three with them right now, but I think there's a bit of a gap right there, and USC's got to get him back on campus. Sounds like he's still going to officially visit during the summer. We thought he'd come in for that uh, June 16th weekend, but it sounds like he's going to go to Ohio State instead that weekend. He is going to be out in Vegas uh, in June, so maybe June 10th or first week of June, I, I don't know you know, what week, uh, because he's going to have some stuff going on during the summer. Uh, American Heritage has a new coach. And so we'll see uh, when he's able to get, but supposedly still got that official visit during the summer, but he's definitely on drop watch a little bit going from high to medium interest, just because it's been a while. And he didn't take that unofficial visit that I was told that he was going to take uh, during the spring. Like he was going to come back during maybe the spring game or something like that. And that hasn't happened. So uh, that sort of, you know, actions speak louder than words when it comes to recruiting. <laughs> That's one of those things. It's like, okay, well, he didn't take that visit. He was going to take. We'll see if he comes uh, during the summer. Uh, Jalen Hale's been moved up from low to medium interest. Again, sort of begrudgingly, sort of like with Justice Hayes. We talked to Jalen Hale last year because he came out for the Elite 11 opening. And That's right. I, don't know I talked you, to him. Did you talk to him? Or, yeah, it was Shotgun. Yeah, it was me. Oh, it was you. Okay. So you <laughs> You remember that conversation, and you remember his interest in USC then, and the vibe. Go ahead and talk about why I might be reluctant to put him at medium interest for USC. Yeah, it was. I caught him after they'd done their check-in, whatever, and he's not a very big, like, talker, if you will, uh, as some of these kids are, which is fine, uh, but just didn't really seem to have really any real connection or interest in USC. He's obviously out here in California. I was talking to him in Southern California, but he had no, you know, plans to try to visit. It was more like, ah, oh, we'll see. We'll see. And again, this was the old, uh, staff. You know, this was the, uh, the Kerry Colbert staff of wide receiver recruiting, which was, 
much. What do you mean by that, Chris? What do you mean by that, Chris? Listen, I get the right to say that because I was tired of taking every other question on Tunnel Vision was about Kerry Colbert and wide receiver recruiting for the last uh, two years. So I get to say that. I get to say that USC recruiting uh, wide receivers fell off. And anyone who try to, to come at me for that, look at the results. Look at the results, especially locally. And Jalen Hale was a top 50 prospect at this time. I believe he still is a top 100 prospect at the very least. But, yeah, just it was just one of those interviews where, you, you know, you know a kid has an offer and you talk to him about it. And it just seems to be like a real disconnect in terms of, you know, his interest and maybe the staff recruiting him as well. So that's that's kind of the vibe I got. So I can see why you'd be hesitant. But this is a new staff, Gerard. This is a Dennis Simmons wide receiver recruiting uh, room. And this is a Lincoln Riley, Texas Roots, recruiting a Texas wide receiver. And he's coming in for an official visit. So I think uh, I think you're I think you're OK bumping him up is what I'm saying. Yeah, from Longview, so East Texas, and we know USC had some kind of weird pull last year with East Texas players. Um, you know, Lincoln Riley from West Texas, rural West Texas, and uh, Longview is it's not necessarily rural, but it's not necessarily uh, Dallas either. It sure is not Dallas or Houston or anything like that. So we'll middle. see with Jalen Hale how, how that goes. Uh, on the athlete category, uh, we bumped up Cade Eldridge. To high interest. Uh, Kate Eldridge uh, took an unofficial visit to USC. He's going to take an official visit. I believe he's going to take an official visit along with that big group for the June 16th, 17th, uh, that weekend. And um, an interesting player here. You know, he's being recruited as a tight end by USC. He's being recruited by Zach Hansen. And so 6'4", 235 out of Lyndon, Washington. Um, a guy that, you know, not a lot of people are talking about, but it seems like USC really likes him. And uh, the tight end position is, is obviously an interesting one because you've got Walker Lyons, you've got Deuce Robinson. Um, those seem to be the top two guys on USC's board, but we know Walker Lyons is probably going to take a Mormon mission out of high school, so he's not going to be available for another two years. Um, Deuce Robinson, who's a great player, also great player in baseball. So, you know, maybe there's just a little bit of supplemental here. Um, I like it. I mean, you've got Nicholas Harbor there as well, who's another athlete who – you know, kind of a tight end receiver slash defensive end. And we talked about him before, you know, fantastic athlete. He's running 10 to eight at you know, six, five two thirty. That's incredible. But defensive end versus tight end versus, you know, even receiver, you've got to be a little more natural of a football player to be able to play receiver. You know, you've got to catch the football. And so you can be fast, you can be big, but if you can't catch the football, it's going to be tough to play receiver. So we'll see if he's a bona fide tight end receiver prospect for USC. USC has not gone either way um, in this particular situation. They've kept their options open and have not committed to one. They've recruiting him as an athlete, say, hey, man, we'll get you in here. I get the vibe. It's interesting because I've heard Nick Harbour say different things. I've heard him say he likes defense more, but the impression I got when we interviewed him was with his speed, he might be more of a hybrid tight end receiver, which you could see USC selling sort of the Drake London role. Um, they've been selling that role <laughs> over the last three years, really. Um, and, uh, and and maybe it's just because of that, because Drake is a name that's, you know, sort of in 
uh, the the lexicon of, of recruits with the draft and everything like that. Um, but it's so, it's so disappointing. They're not going to really get to fully utilize the Drake London recruiting uh, pitch. You know, it looks great now because he went number eight overall. But they're, you know, Harrell. I mean, I'm sure they'll they'll get to use it at West Virginia and probably Helton at Georgia Southern. But oh. they never really got to fully sell it. You know, because like you could have sold it right after he he went number eight. It's like, look, the Drake London role. He went number eight, first wide receiver off the board. Come come be the next Drake London. Never going to see that fully utilized at USC. That that pitch. Chris, that they will trust me. They will utilize it. <laughs> They will find a way to – there's – you know, I mean, Oregon was taking credit for Dan Lanning <laughs> coaching guys at Georgia and winning a national championship and, you know, trying to sort of subtly go, yeah, we kind of we kind of have a championship now, right? Because Dan Lanning won a championship at Georgia. So it's like kind of, you know, transferable properties here. We, we kind of are now championship team now, right? Right? We're championship team now. Trust me. Schools and coaches will, will, oh man, they got, they were, they, they were just on the coaching staff of a, of a, of a guy that went in the first round and they'll bring that up in a, in a recruiting meeting. You know, I've seen all kinds of great players, you know, and still, you know, mention some name, drop some name. And it's like, coach, you weren't even, you had nothing to do with that guy at all. You didn't recruit him. You didn't coach him. Yeah, but I was on the staff. I was in the, the team meetings and he was there a couple times. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't put it past uh, anybody, uh, of uh, talking of Drake London and what he did at USC uh, on this coaching staff. I'm sure that name will be dropped many times in the future uh, for as long as Drake London is a guy, you know, I mean, Drake London will be a guy in the NFL. And as long as he's a good player in the NFL, uh, they'll talk him up, you know, he's Trojan. And so uh, that'll be used for sure. Um, Defensive side of the ball, your boy, your boy from Santa Clara, Mr. Amos Talele. He's uh, been bumped up to high interest. I just think USC is is at the top of his list. Um, we haven't gotten to talk to him very much, but uh, seems like if USC really wants to make the push for him, um, that that's potentially there. I, I think USC wants to see where they are with guys like John Walker, the six three three ten defensive tackle, number fourteen in the nation from Osceola, Florida. Um, they've got also. Uh, apparently going to visit USC and, and we haven't been able to confirm this yet, but uh, he put it out there. Jordan Hall, six, five, 300 pound defensive tackle from Jacksonville, Florida. So another Florida boy, a couple of big Southern defensive tackles that uh, could potentially be on campus in early June. And again, that's one of those sort of, I feel like that June 10 weekend is the get your foot in the door weekend, right? It's, there was a lot of that last year. Yeah. With, let's just, see if we can get some traction with some of these players. Like we're on the outside looking in, you know, uh, Jordan Hall's got medium interest, but a lot of people think, yeah, he's probably going to go to Florida state. He's going to stay in state. You know, John Walker's probably going to stay in the South, but it's an opportunity to kind of get some traction and maybe you get something there. There's an angle to recruit. Uh, there's, you know, Oh yeah. You know, my uncle actually lives in California or something that you, you didn't know. And it helps you get an angle on that recruitment. And if you win games, you're able to get back into that recruitment. Again, they, these guys might commit during the summer, and it might be hard for USC to sell it well enough. Like, hey, we're going to be great. Just wait. We're going to be great, you know, and, and, and get those commitments. They might have to lose those guys. But if you can stay in it and you're able to win a bunch of games next season, uh, you can get back into that picture. Now, you've already burned that official visit. 
But it seems like, you know, they're able to get guys on campus more unofficially these days than they have in the past. So perhaps you're able to get uh, an unofficial visit during the season and, um, you know, you're able to get uh, a big game, um, you know, Notre Dame game or something where you, you if, if USC's winning and they've got a great season, you build it, they will come and you get that Coliseum packed and you're able to have a good game day environment because that's, that's also one of the things we talked to us a little bit about the spring game, you know, you're comparing this to like Oklahoma or Ohio state or Nebraska or these schools that, you know, you, you're going to pack the stadium for a spring game. And these kids are, are mesmerized by that. And then you go to USC and it's like, unless you're a local player and you haven't been down South and seen how it is, you're going to look at it and go, Oh, that's kind of underwhelming. So it doesn't behoove USC to have a bunch of out of state guys to come to their spring game. Cause you're, you're, you're comparing it against other spring games. Same thing goes during the season. Like people are going to be very interested um, in Lincoln Riley, the first game of the season, uh, the initial first couple games, the home games, they may be close to sellouts. Like they may be, but you got to keep winning <laughs> to get that buzz and to keep that buzz and actually create a real game day environment. And, and once you do, it'll be there. You know, again, I think I said this in the last podcast, um, you want to be the best game in town in LA because you're not going to be the only game in town. You're never the only game in town. doesn't matter if there are professional teams playing football in LA or not. You still got the Lakers. You still got the Dodgers. You still got Disneyland. You still got the beach. You still got a lot of stuff that you're competing against for people's attention. You got to be the best game in town. So in order to be the best game in town, you got to win those football games. And if you do it, then you'll have all the flash bulbs and you'll have all the people and it'll be crazy. I mean, it'll, it'll be just like anywhere else. And with that, Gerard, are you ready to move into our final period of listener questions? The, the fourth quarter. The fourth quarter. We're in the fourth quarter. We're, we're knocking on the end zone to, to put in this one away. So let's, let's finish strong. Let's, uh, let's run our three best plays to get in the end zone here. You ready? I'm ready. And just a reminder, if you have a question for us, you can email email us at podcast at uscfootball.com. Uh, just make sure you put in the header, uh, composite two-star recruits, Chris and Gerard, those Latino guys. Everyone seems to like that Latino guys joke. So I don't think we, I don't think we've had anyone do that yet. That, that might be, that might be the case. But again, you can put any of those. You can also DM me. A lot of people DM me questions. So some of those are, are DM questions. Don't DM Gerard because he's not going to read it. I, I'm, I can already, I can already guarantee you he's not going to read it. So just well, you can't DM, me. DM me because I mean on Twitter because I, I probably don't follow you. You're talking Fair about enough. like on the website? No, no, yeah, on Twitter. Are your oh, DMs not open? Yeah, no, no, my okay. my DMs are closed. Uh, also, Chris, you might want to note that you could also just post on the Peristyle and have it answered. Almost immediately, instead of waiting a week. So there you go, a perk for being a Peristyle member. Look at that. You're you're getting good at this uh, little the plugs, the plugs for the Peristyle. So yeah, also also a valid point. You can uh, just post on the board, and we'll we'll get to that eventually. So we got a couple. Well, not eventually. Very quickly. It's very quickly. I'm on that board ten hours a day, buddy. I'm not off the class. All right. Sorry. Not 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 eventually. Uh, rapidly, rapidly yeah. is is a, is the better word. Yes, the more accurate word. Yes. So we're gonna start off with a Twitter question. This is from uh, Eric Gutierrez from a home, Omaha, Nebraska. I wonder if he went to the Nebraska spring game. Uh, I wonder if but, he knows Casey Rogers. I wonder if he does. 
This one says, okay, I'm getting pretty excited about Game 1 versus Rice. I already have my tickets, and I'm anxiously waiting for them to announce a game time. Really hope it is a night game. Just wondering when they announce that, and what are you guys hoping for for the first start time of the Lincoln-Riley era in Game 1? Eric, uh, in terms of times, I feel like those are going to come out. Usually they come out closer to the the official date, at least during the season, start times won't be announced until like two weeks before. Obviously the season opener is a little bit different. I think it's going to come out in the summer. I think you'll maybe that June, you'll have a, a date by then, maybe a little bit earlier into fall camp, but you're, I think it's going to be a couple of, a couple of months. At least that's where my recollection it doesn't happen until uh, a little bit ways out, but still a little bit earlier than, than the normal kickoff times during the season. As for me, what time I'm hoping for, I mean, the media side of me is hoping for an earlier game just because those are long nights uh, for night games. Usually don't get out of there till like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. But I would say I, I think a night game for the first Lincoln-Riley era game would be would be nice. So I think maybe like that 4 o'clock kickoff, that's not too late. You're going to end in the evening. So I would say 4 o'clock would be my, my ideal uh, kickoff time for the for the for the opener yeah it's usually a, an afternoon or night kickoff mm-hmm. for the opener uh very rarely do i remember it being an earlier kickoff uh for opening season game uh unless you know it's away um but I feel so, like the western michigan game three years ago was a 12 p.m kickoff and then obviously yeah, the it, uh it, it, it the pandemic one was a <laughs> That was a that I mean you can't even really count the one, but that was like a wasn't that like nine a.m. or something yes. like that? Yeah, yes, that so. was a, that, yes, yeah, that was uh, weird, but that was just you know a, a kind of yeah. exception Blue, to the rule I yeah. think in terms of scheduling and and when the games were being played and so so on and so forth. But um, yeah, I mean I think four five o'clock is 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 awesome. It's usually the back end of of twelve thirty is usually the best I think for everybody everybody. Because I know what it's like to get out of the Coliseum after a 12:30 start, uh, and that's usually you're getting out three, four o'clock, and the traffic is even on a Saturday absolutely nuts. I, I remember some of those games coming away. Um, I remember there was one Stanford game, and it, it took me like four hours to get home. Man, I mean, I had to. Yeah, I won't even tell you, but I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> And it sucked because there's not a whole lot of anything. There's no real off ramps. Like I'm going back to the IE. So you get on the 110 and then you get to the 10 and it's just all industrial for the most part until you get out to like Monterey Park (laughs) and you're not going anywhere very fast. So it's not like you're moving that way to Monterey Park. And it took me an hour to get out of the parking structure and probably another hour plus to get out to like East LA Monterey Park. And so it sucked. And so, yeah, those, those sort of, you know, even noon games can be really bad uh, if it's a game that is, is packed. I mean, that Stanford game, I think that was a Stanford game where they got blown out um, uh, by, by Toby Gerhardt. It was one of those like a, a long time ago. Toby. So I've, I've sworn off of 1230 games at, at USC. Like, I'm like, nah, not covering that game. Won't be there for that one. Um, I'll, I'll show up a little late, the later games because those always are a little easier because you're just – I don't know, for whatever reason, that, that, that rush hour traffic, you're kind of on the back end of it. 
So it's, you know, it's always bad kind of getting off of campus and getting on the 110 and getting the 10. But once you get onto the 10, you get out away from L.A., you can get moving and you get home at a decent time. But, yeah, if it's 1230, I've spent some some long hours in that parking structure and long hours on Jefferson trying to get the hell out of there. And that just uh, that just sucks. Our next question comes from Corey, a U.S. history teacher. I love it when they put their profession in USC history teacher. Teachers don't get enough love, especially USC history teachers. So shout out to Corey and his class. Good morning, Chris and Gerard. With the official visit weekend of June 16th, 19th, next month slowly approaching, any idea Francis Maioga, Isaiah Robinson, and Lucas Simmons will join Elijah Page that weekend for an official visit? Appreciate your guys' insight and love the podcast. I believe Francis is taking his official visits, all five of them, this summer. Um, I believe June as well. Will that be on that weekend? Uh, I can't say for sure, but I think there's a good chance that that could happen. But also Francis feels like a guy maybe you'd want to bring in for their own sort of weekend. You know, sort of like the Tackett Curtis uh model that they're going for in terms of getting a more one-on-one experience sort of you want to really you know live it up for him and only him and not just maybe like 15 other guys you you kind of want Francis to have his own sort of unique official visit experience given his his stature and sort of him being your probably your number one priority and I believe we've mentioned that Lucas Simmons is expected to be in that visit group Gerard maybe I'm I'm misremembering I believe that's something we mentioned last week. He will be. He will be. He's scheduled now for that weekend, as is Elijah Page. So uh, both those guys are. Isaiah Robinson, we haven't heard back yet. Um, He does want to visit USC, but we haven't heard. There was some potential that, like, maybe the back end of May, they might try to sneak in a weekend where they have official visitors. Um, So not 100% sure. Going back to Tackett, so talk a little bit more about that because – uh, we still have him technically on that big visit weekend, but we talked about the strategy of that and how it worked for Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma, but it is a little bit of a gamble because you're bringing in 16 to 20 recruits on one weekend. You're trying to give everybody a, some love and some, some individual attention, and it's it's tough you know, for the, the coaching staff. Obviously, USC has done a good job creating a, a bigger support staff. They're more organized than they've ever been. Uh, they've got people there to be able to host, but these kids want to talk to the coaches. They want to have that relationship with their coaches. They want to get that one-on-one time. So it's, you know, do we create this big environment weekend and try to get everybody sucked up in the momentum of recruiting and committing and, hey, you guys are all going to play together and this is going to be like half the recruiting class. It's going to be the game changer for us. Or do you want to spread it out and have guys that you can sit down and really work on them one-on-one more for the whole weekend? So there's definitely sort of a debate that you could have as to which one is better, which one works better. Uh, But we know that in the past, Lincoln Riley and Oklahoma have had these big barbecue-type weekends. And so Lucas Simmons and Elijah Page are two guys that are for sure coming in. Uh, Francis Malagoa, we don't know 100% yet. Uh, possibility. And Isaiah Robinson, yeah, still up in the air. Isaiah Robinson hasn't taken that unofficial visit to USC. I think Texas is a big leader for him right now. 
Uh, Texas A&M is trying to get into it. USC trying to rekindle that interest after he took that unofficial visit uh, last year. And he, he has high interest in USC, kind of, sort of, still. Uh, but it's been a while. Um, you know, USC's definitely got to kind of, uh, again, get back in it with him and try to rekindle that interest. But, you know, this is the upside in losing Josh Connerly Jr. That left tackle spot in the future is wide open for a starting job. You can say, listen, you can come in right away and play right, right, uh, left tackle or, you know, even right tackle, but left tackle, which is the position that all these guys want to play, uh, is wide open for you to play as a true freshman. Again, you don't want a true freshman playing left tackle, but quite frankly, USC's getting to the point where, uh, they might have to start a, a left tackle, especially if they could bring him in during the spring and get those 15 practices. Then it's a little more doable, a little more likely. And just with the the whole Tackett thing and using that sort of an example is, you know, Tackett was recruited by Oklahoma and they've been to the barbecue. They, his camp and him have been to that, that big barbecue event. They've been to the events with like, you know, 50 other kids there, but in his process, he's getting down to, you know, get ready to make a decision. And I'm told, you know, he's basically getting ready to make a commitment in July. He's got the, the three big contenders, which being Ohio State, USC, and Wisconsin. I believe he's taking all those visits in June to set up for that July decision. So it's like right now we're down to the nitty gritty. You know, I don't need to be on that visit with 15 other kids. I, I want to get that one-on-one time because I'm about to make my decision. I want to get that personal time with the coaches. I got questions that I want answered about the program. I need X, Y, and Z answered before I can make, you know, this big decision. And it's so much easier and you're going to get such better answers and and all that when, you know, it's it's maybe it's just you and two other kids on the visit as opposed to 15 other kids. And I think that's the thinking behind it. And you're right. It is sort of maybe a, I don't want to say gamble, but like it does maybe create some problems if you have all these kids and you can't give them all one on one time. But from what I've seen, it seems like the, the, the staff is really, really good at sort of spreading out their time among when they have these big like these big visit dates. They're always hopping one to uh, or from you know family to family recruit to recruit and i saw it at the the spring game when they had all those everyone in the in the eating area you know i saw Kyle mcdonald i saw alex grinch i saw them bouncing from table to table so they seem to have a good grasp on you know there's a lot of kids i gotta i gotta shake a lot of hands i gotta meet a lot of people i gotta do that but it is a little bit easier when you have instead of like uh 50 kids maybe 15 you can quarter kind of focus that a little bit more but that's sort of the 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 strategy with with Tackett and his his camp in terms of trying to get a much more intimate sort of one-on-one visit in in terms of the bigger one do we have a date for him instead of that 17th is I feel like we're having like a uh a backroom chat right now on the podcast no there is not a there has not been an official visit date set right now uh but it is expected to be in June because see Here's where, and this is, like you said, a backroom chat. This is a sort of some insight into the process of kind of gauging interest and how things look, uh, trying to read between the lines, if you will, because you kind of wonder, okay, so, you know, Chris Tackett has taken an unofficial, he's taken several unofficial visits. He took uh, two unofficial visits to USC in the past year or so. So you would say, okay, the new staff he just got to meet at USC, but he knew them from Oklahoma. So 
the first visit, he got to see USC, got to see, you know, the Coliseum and sort of that initial superficial, hey, I'm in LA. And then the second visit, he kind of gets to connect more with the new coaching staff, which is a coaching staff he already had a relationship with from Oklahoma. The next visit, you go, okay, so he's down to the nitty gritty. He should have some good information about the university. He should already kind of have that connection with the coaching staff. If he really was high on USC and USC was like the team to be, you would figure maybe he would want to be there with these other recruits to see what that class might look like, that it wouldn't be as important to have that intimate sort of one-on-one conversation with the coaches and be looked at. Because I say this looking at Ohio State's visit weekend that he's scheduled to come in for. Now, maybe this is also following through. But as of right now, he's scheduled to come in June 24th for Ohio State. And Ohio State already has 12 official visitors stacked up for that weekend. So now you go, okay. And we know Ohio State's very confident about Curtis Tackett. They feel like they are the lead school for him. And this is going to be the weekend where they bring in a bunch of their commits and a bunch of the guys that they feel are going to commit. So that's really the last weekend of June of the summer that they're going to have to recruit. And he's scheduled to come in for that weekend. So we're going to have to see if he keeps that weekend schedule for Ohio State. Because now all of a sudden you're saying one thing but doing another. Like I want to have this intimate sort of one-on-one time. And I don't want to be a part of this bigger group. But then with Ohio State, he is a part of a bigger group. And if he keeps that visit, then it's sort of uh, going against the grain of, of rescheduling that visit for USC. So just something to keep an eye on, something that I noticed that, you know, might be a little bit of a tell as to maybe where he's leaning. That was a sort of conversation we would have on the phone, but you made a podcast ver- version. So I think that was a first uh, for this podcast. There you go. Moving on. Deep Make it a premium Central- podcast. Change it up, Chris. Okay. It's, premium podcast it's, now. it's all VIP. It's all VIP. D from Central Valley asks, this one's for you specifically, Gerard. Uh, GM, on your latest target list, it seemed that the defensive tackle position was uninspiring when it came to prospects trending up. Do you have any positive information on the defensive tackle position? They want optimism, Gerard. They want something to cling on to to get them through the month. They want lies. They want lies. <laughs> they want me to sit here and say, oh, yeah, USC's going to get everybody. And listen, that sells. There's uh, plenty of people out there and writers that love their clickbait articles and writing about guys that just have, you know, cursory interest in USC. And it's like, yeah, I just play it up. And, and, and that's just not the case. I mean, obviously I think it's a good thing. We talked earlier about official visits, getting John Walker and uh, Jordan Hall on campus. I mean, that's as good as it gets for USC right now is, is those out of state guys from the South, um, at least getting them on campus and getting a chance to make a move with them. You know, they're on the outside looking in, I think, for both of those players. Uh, But there's some potential there, you know, that they're able to uh, be able to sort of move the needle with them. And, and again, I think with some of these guys, you're just going to have to win games. You know, you're going to have to show that, hey, this this is – you better get on this train now because once it gets rolling, you know, we're not looking back sort of thing. Um, But it's going to be tough to do that, I think – you know, initially, uh, are these play? It's like we we sort of get to a point where it feels like okay, they're in a really good position for this player or that player, and even with transfers, we've seen this. And you know, the re coming out of 
uh, a USC is clearly like they're confident for a player and they feel like they're going to get that player and the emojis are out and everything. And then it doesn't go their way. And that's just what happens when you're a bad football program and USC is still a bad football program. I mean, you, you're not a good football program until you win games, right? I mean, you, we can't say anything about the change until the change has been shown on the field. And so that's what you kind of see. You, you, you see misreads and, and, and things that happen because that you haven't won those games. You haven't built that momentum. You don't have that consistency. Um, you know, the Pete Carroll staffs, you know, when they were confident about a player, as a 90, probably 8% chance they're going to get that guy. You know, very rarely were they were super confident about a guy and lose a guy. But as the years go on and you start to see USC uh, regress on the football field and there's less stability there with the coaching staff because every other year you're looking at Clay Helton like, this guy's probably going to get fired. You know, the recruits, they, 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 they like the coaching staff. They like the players. They like Clay Helton. He's a really good guy. And they don't want to say anything bad, and they don't really want to tell, you know, coaches no. But at the same time, it's just not going to USC. It's just not in the cards. They're, they're just not believing in the player development, and they're not believing in the product in the field. And you have a lot of instances where, you know, USC was feeling good because the recruits made them feel good. But they were never going to USC. There was a lot of instances where just those guys were never going to go to USC. And so when you start winning – and you start developing and you get that behind you, your reads become much better all of a sudden. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the guys that you think you're getting, you do get. And it's like, wow, okay, see how that works? Uh, so we just, we're not at that point yet. So we're still, we got to remember that. And, and, and I mean, the fan base has to sort of see that and realize that and, and not get necessarily huge expectations. And, you know, they may get a guy, you know, you may, you may be able to get a Braxton Myers. And it's like, wow, man, four-star, out-of-state, Texas safety, one of the better safeties, you know, in the country. And, and, and you know, Clemson's been recruiting him and a lot of these other schools. And, and if USC is able to lock him down, then all of a sudden everybody's like, well, hey now. <laughs> you know, we just got a guy from out-of-state, four-star. Other people really wanted this kid. We got him. So that means we can get this guy and that guy. And it's like, not necessarily. You know, we especially defensive tackle have said this. Many, many times, even in USC's heyday with Pete Carroll, it was an absolute struggle to be able to get those guys out of the South. I know it's a different time. It's a different recruiting era. You have NIL now. You have all this different stuff going on, and that creates variables and wild cards, and we're going to see how that all shakes out. It's a work in progress, if you will, but we know that defensive tackles especially out of the South are just very, very hard to pry out of there. You're, you're fighting against these other schools. You're fighting against all kinds of variables that uh, you don't see necessarily uh, working in the background. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on for those particular players. And I think they just tend to be homebodies. They tend to be mama's boys, and they tend to not really want to necessarily go far away from home. So you have your work cut out for you getting a bunch of defensive linemen from the South. Really, I think, you know, for USC to be successful, they've got to cultivate those options closer to home maybe you can get in there and get some texas kids here and there uh but you're gonna have to get some west coast guys eventually and, and that's where you know a guy like uh you know amos talele comes in and, and and players of that ilk and some of those guys that sean nua is 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 looking at in the polynesian community even on the offensive side of the ball um those guys are going to be very huge because if you're going to be elite at USC, you're going to have to really use a lot of those guys that are on the West Coast and develop them. 
Um, you know, again, in, in Pete Carroll's heyday, he wasn't just going down and grabbing guys out of Georgia left and right. I mean, you've got like Kyle Moore. Uh, they got Ryan Watson out of Louisiana, who ended up not being that great of a player. Um, they didn't get a bunch of guys that were uh, Southern guys to be their guys. It was Sean Cody. It was Mike Patterson. Uh, it was Lawan Ramsey. Um, they got Leonard Williams way afterwards. And again, I've always said Leonard Williams was from Southern California. So yeah, you got to keep that in mind. Um, even in the heyday where USC was winning, you know, 11, 12 games and they're in a national championship hunt every single year, it was still a battle to go out there and get those top players from the South in general. And specifically they were Oh four quite a lot in terms of offers versus the ratio of guys that they actually got committed. Even the ratio of guys they would get on campus, it was still pretty low when dealing with the South. I don't think you're – I don't think uh, – he wanted names, and you, you gave him the, the, the realest answer, and that's why people tuned into this podcast, Gerard. That's why they tune in. Well, I gave him some names. There's, there's I mean, a couple guys who are going to take official visits. But, I, I, you know, we're going to have to see. I think when it comes to defensive linemen, Cameron Bryant is, is more of a guy that you're going to have to look at. He's a four-star, you know, local out of Chatsworth and 6'3", 260. Those are the type of guys, though, that end up being All-Americans. You know, 6'3", 260, and you're looking at him, and you're like, okay. I mean, he's a big body, and he's kind of showing a little bit here and there. But these kids on the West Coast are not physically – as advanced a lot of times, you know, I, I'll, I'll go back to the, the Brian Cushing, Clay Matthews uh, comparison. I always go back to that is, you know, Brian Cushing coming out of high school was a, just a grown man. He was ready to play right away. He was, he was, I mean, he had that shoulder injury, which really hampered him his freshman year, but he still played and started a bunch of games as a freshman. He was a really good player coming out of Burden Catholic right out of the gates. Right. And then you've got Clay Matthews who had to take a red shirt, who was a walk on, but then you see the development process with good coaching and you see what those guys look like coming out of college and who got drafted first, you know, who, who had the most successful NFL career. Now I know Clay Matthews obviously had great bloodlines, but coming out of high school, that didn't see the matter a whole lot because <laughs> he was not recruited heavily. He was six three, two hundred 200 pounds. So yeah, I mean, you know, Cameron Bryant and, and Grant Bucky and those type of guys uh, that are local players, those are the guys that USC really has to, you know, look at and make sure that they're not overlooking those guys to get too obsessed with these guys in Georgia and Florida. We saw that, you know, last year where, you know, USC was really all hyped up on Mikel Williams and they were hyped up on Christian Miller. And it was all about those guys. And they completely overlooked and dismissed a bunch of guys locally. They had no plan B's or plan C's. It was like, we're going to go all in on a bunch of these out of state guys. And then when they didn't get them, it was like, okay, well, all right. Yeah. So what? We're just not going to recruit anybody else? No, you got to get bodies, man. So you really you 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 can't you can't just look you know to to those regions and put all your eggs in those baskets. You definitely got to develop the local players and the bodies. And and like I said, Sean New is from out here, and I mean West Coast wise, he's a Western guy, and uh, I think he understands that. And and you know Ryan Abraham asked that question to him straight up, said, hey. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of big bodies on the West Coast. You know, what do you do? Do you go to the Do you go to the Midwest and, and just recruit those guys? And Sean Newell goes, "We'll find big bodies out here. You know, we'll get them. They'll, there's There's guys to be gotten, and it's true. That's why you see a guy like Solomon Bird all of a sudden coming out of Wyoming, who's you know being recruited by these other schools, and ends up at USC. 
You know, Solomon Bird, you look at him out coming out of high school, he should have definitely been more highly recruited. And this is part of the reason why the Pac-12 sucks, okay? The Pac-12 sucks because they're buying into you have to go into Texas and you have to go into the South to go find football players. I mean, last time I looked at the draft, California was way up there, you know? Like, it, they, they're still producing a bunch of guys in our top three in terms of uh, draft uh, guys that are getting recruited. And a lot of those players are not playing in Pac-12 schools. They're not getting drafted from Pac-12 schools. They're ending up at Wyoming. So, you know, that's one of those things where you have to just do the homework. You've got to do your research. You've got to go on these recruiting visits. You've got to go to these random places in Milpitas and, and Central California and Fresno and uh, going out to San Bernardino and, and going into Coachella Valley. Go find players. I mean, Royce Friedman came out of freaking Calexico. I mean, he was down there by the border and nobody was going to recruit him. And USC went down there. Uh, uh, Kennedy Polamalu went down there, and they they found out about him, and and he ended up being a guy. And he ended up going to Oregon uh, because I think USC kind of sort of were trying to figure out things with him, and you know they were looking at the competition level and all that. But yeah, California, man, there's a lot of little blank spots on the map that don't get a lot of love, and you gotta you just got to do your homework, and you've got to know the West Coast. You got to be committed to that, and and I think the last staff that was really committed to that was the Steve Sarkeesian staff because you had a bunch of West coast guys and they kind of understood, Hey, we're not going to get a bunch of six, five, 315 pound linemen all over the place, righty to just hit the ground running. We got to go find some guys that are going to be maybe six, four, six, five, but they're going to be two forty, or they're going to be two sixty, and they're going to need a red shirt and we're going to have to develop them. And that's okay. And especially in the time of the portal, being able to have those guys and developing your program, you know, that's not a bad thing to put a guy on ice and, and have him redshirt, and he's not a five-star guy because those guys in the South that are five-star guys, they're going to start looking around if they're not playing their freshman year. Drew, we have one more question. We have to give a rapid fire on this. We're way over already. I have to go to two showcases, so we got to wrap this up because i got to edit this before I go out. I do not know who asked this question because I'm famously bad at keeping the names in order, but hi, Chris and Gerard. There's a former four-star offensive tackle from Texas A&M in the portal, Derek Hunter. Does USC have any interest in him and vice versa? He's one of the higher-ranked offensive linemen still in the portal, so I was wondering what your thoughts are on him. Thank you so much. Well, I cannot confirm that there has been any sort of communication, but obviously there is a connection with Josh Henson literally having coached this player, but it it – appears to me like if they have this direct connection and it hasn't really happened already there probably is sort of maybe a minimal interest that maybe it's not he's not super high on their board uh but given that there wasn't there isn't a ton of high-end offensive line uh talent uh in the portal right now you know bigger names did not hit the portal as expected you know it could be a guy that they circle back to sort of to to reassess and maybe kind of bring in he would be probably more so a depth guy as opposed to a guy who can compete for a starting job right away yeah well said in terms of um you know when you have those strong connections it seemed like those guys commit pretty early on you know i mean we've already seen uh some complaints about that you know Deion sanders had a, a really good tweet where he kind of outed that process a bit of you know the kids kind of having high school coaches you know reach out and everything before they're even in the portal and, and going through that process and I know that to be 100% true um, and if you've got you know that relationship with the, the offensive line coach and you really like them then kind of would get a sense like that would happen maybe kind of quickly 
Um, but um, then again, you know, at the same time, nothing seems to be necessarily happening quickly uh, with USC with some of these players. You know, I mean, the Josh, or excuse me, uh, Jordan Addison thing, um, Caleb Williams didn't happen quickly. Um, so yeah, it's it's hard to read that. You know, it's it's hard to read. Is it is it? You know, it takes a while because you know, the whole tampering thing and, and, and schools don't want to look like they're tampering. So uh, the recruit just kind of goes through the motions of having a process and just waits and waits and waits and then goes. Uh, obviously, there's, you know, a little bit of time here before they're back on the field and they start uh, workouts, which I want to say is like May 20th or somewhere around that date is when they get back on the field and they start their summer workouts. You want to get these guys into summer workouts. Now, unfortunately, I know that's not going to happen. Well, some of these players are going to still be taking visits and they're still going to be going through the process. And it's like, dude, you know, we don't want you showing up the first day of fall camp being your first day on campus. But, you know, that's just sort of where we are right now with the transfer portal. Uh, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I, I, I don't know. I haven't heard Derek Hunter's name mentioned. Um, I don't know much about him as a player. You know, you've got Willie Allen out there from UMass who's, you know, another guy who's a, who's rated in 85. Um, so he's closer to, uh, you know, what Bobby Haskins was rated coming out of the portal. Um, you got a few guys, uh, the, the guy coming out from ASU, Spencer Lavelle, who's uh, ranked a little lower. He's like an 81. Um, but, you know, he's got three years immediate eligibility. So uh, there are some, some bodies out there still. Uh, USC's not going to get that franchise guy. They're not going to get that um, – you know, immediate starter, a guy walks in and goes, okay, that's going to be our left tackle. Uh, so, uh, but they still, I think, you know, bodies on the offensive line are still good. You know, I think that's an underrated thing. And um, getting another offensive tackle wouldn't be a bad thing. Uh, but we'll see. You know, they got to get these guys on campus. And uh, all of this transfer stuff is very cloaked in mystery. All of these schools are very tight-lipped about it. It's a whole thing. It's it's not even like the recruiting process. is. It's very strange, very odd. It, I, I guess it's because a lot of these transfers don't want to deal with recruiting, like the whole Jordan Addison thing. I mean, Jordan Addison, you know, I'll just say, he, he jumped on a plane from Vegas with uh, Malachi Nelson. This was actually posted on our own message board, right? It was posted on our message board. Somebody was at the, the Vegas airport, and they were on the same flight as these guys, and they posted it. And and I had to verify it because you don't know. You know, people sometimes just post random stuff, and it's not true on the message board. But I verified it, and he was on the same flight as Malachi Nelson uh, going to L.A., right? But, you know, he's got a mask on because you got to wear a mask. So, ooh, nobody knows who he is. But he's wearing, you know, his number three backpack from Pitt. So, <laughs> it's like, you know, it kind of, you know, anybody who knows who Malachi Nelson is are going to go, well, who's Malachi talking with? And then you see that backpack and all of a sudden, boom. So, he was outed right away coming to L.A. from Las Vegas after the draft. So, maybe he had no other backpack. I guess not, you know. But, nevertheless, you know, he's clearly not trying to – be out there with the process or say too much about the process or talk about the process for better, or for worse. You know, I mean, I think from an NIL standpoint, it behooves these players and, and these recruits to be more media savvy and more media friendly because you are giving yourself basically an interview for whatever company that actually wants to come in and, and use you for advertising. Um, if you seem like you're articulate and you seem like you've got good character and you come off well, and you're able to handle media well, companies are going to be way more enthused to be able to work with you. But if you're, you know, a, a hermit, and you really are not articulate, and you really don't have much to say, uh, do I really want to use you for my commercial? 
Hell no. I mean, we, we always have that conversation in terms of, um, you know, who we're talking to on camera uh, after practice. You know, when Keeley was doing stand-ups, it's like, you know, who, who and from a recruiting standpoint, especially, you know, we would talk about that. You know, who can we put on camera? Who are we going to get a decent interview from? I don't want to f- put somebody on camera with you that just, you know, doesn't have anything to say. It's not a very good video for you, and it's going to be difficult for her. So we always try to make sure that, you know, you set it up for success, somebody that's good at, at speaking. Um, and so that goes, uh, you know, for these endorsements as well. And the real NIL, how it's supposed to be used with companies that actually want to use players that are good players to be able to help their products, you know, put you next to that product, uh, that service, whatever it is, and promote that. And in order to do that, you've got to be articulate. You've got to be able to have um, these qualities among you. And I I think, you know, engaging with the media and and having this process be a little more open is, is really better for them. But, you know, they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too. You know, they want to deal with these companies, but then they kind of don't want to talk about the process and, and they don't want the pressure of the process, which I understand, you know, and I guess maybe the media uh, exacerbates that and it makes it, you know, harder because there's, you know, more people that are calling you and trying to talk to you. Uh, but, you know, if you want to be a big time guy, uh, you should figure out what your options are going to be and just, you know, keep it to those options and you should be a little more open about these things. Some guys are taking it in their own hands, you know, with social media and, and, and hired camera crews to follow them around. And I don't know how that all works. I don't know who's getting paid. And, and I, I can see lawsuits happening down the line because somebody didn't get paid for, for videotaping all these, uh, these visits and everything like that. And it becomes a whole thing. And it's like, hey, man, I, man, I, I deserve uh, these millions of dollars that you have now that you're in the NFL and you've got these contracts because I was the one who helped videotape you uh, you know, coming out of high school and, and I didn't really get paid like you're supposed to pay me type of thing. I can see that happening down the line. Um, but nevertheless, it does help them to be able to get out there and, and even just getting used to the experience uh, of speaking on camera or speaking to a reporter and, uh, and being uh, aware of sort of what you're saying and, and knowing that, again, these companies now are looking at that and they're making judgments. How else do they make this judgment? They're not calling. Well, I shouldn't say that. I actually have spoken to several companies that are involved in nil with uh with with players um on stuff and and not necessarily you know about a particular player and how they conduct themselves but definitely interested into who's coming down the pike and what does it look like and what's the environment right now at the high school level and some of these players and what they're thinking about and and how it's going and how certain schools are, are are handling nil uh from a compliance standpoint i've had those conversations with a couple of companies that are involved and are actually having NIL deals with players right now. Um, but it's not necessarily like there's that sort of how, when you're talking about collectives, you know, how do they know who to go after? How do they know who are the top players? Well, they get on 24 seven sports. <laughs> you, they're not supposed to talk to the coaching staff about that stuff, right? That's illegal. You can't talk to the coaching staff and say, Hey, Lincoln, What's your board look like? What are the guys that I need to pay? You can't do that, right? You, you can't do that. The Tennessee boosters and collectives and whoever, they can't go to the Tennessee coaching staff and say, who's your top quarterback on your board? He's the guy we're going to make an $8 million deal with. That's illegal. That's absolutely positively illegal. So, you know, whether you can enforce that or not, obviously we already talked about that, but that's where you go, well, who are they figuring out 
you know, how, what, what, what the board looks like and what the pecking order is. I mean, quite frankly, it's, it's the recruiting, recruiting publications and it's people like ourselves that are sort of cluing you in as to who the top players are. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic to all this as well. So again, I think it behooves these players, um, to try to use the media as much as possible. Use it as a vehicle to potentially get yourself deals. Um, because if you're just that guy that never picks up the phone, you don't go to any events, uh, you're the guy that's going to, it's going to take a lot longer for you to be able to get some deals. And you may, when you get those deals, uh, or you get that opportunity to have a deal, that company actually talks to you in person. And they go, God, this guy, we can't get him on camera. Like he can't, he can't speak. He can't talk. He doesn't know what to say. He's uncomfortable. He's nervous because he's never done it before. Gerard, I love you, but you absolutely failed that assignment of giving me a quick answer so I could get to editing. Not that anyone cares uh, in terms of the listeners. They wanted a two-hour and 30-minute podcast. This this is the new longest podcast that we've done. I don't know how we did it because I was looking at it with about an hour on the runtime, and I was like, we only have two more topics. We're going to be under two hours, and yet here I am staring at a two-hour and 30-minute podcast I have to edit. So I don't – I don't – I have nothing else. You have nothing else. Um, do you want to say anything else? No, no, no. That's that's it. Thank you for listening. We appreciate all of our members, Peristyle members. Thank you very much for subscribing. It obviously helps us a lot, and you can always connect with us on the Peristyle. And those that are uh, the casuals, hey, guys, get on board, man. It's happening right now. It's happening. And again, thank you to Trader Joe's for sponsoring this episode, and we will see you next time on the Composite Two-Star Recruits. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen.